All right, he's back for another episode. On this episode, we catch up with one another. We talk about rethinking the big patterns 2.0. We talk about creating content and mastering a topic. Pat speaks about his potential partnership with Kaiser. I ask Pat about his next book. We talk about receiving feedback from other people in your close circle. I asked Pat about his body composition goals. We discuss learning, recall, and retention. And finally, we talk about the NFL at the time of this recording, which was back in November 2019. And I just asked Pat who did he think or who did he feel at the time was looking like the potential NFL champions for the 2019-20 season and as we know now spoiler alert for anyone who does not know but you do kansas city and pat mahomes and that whole gang anyway guys um hope you really do enjoy this i know i've been pretty slow getting some episodes out lately just with dissertation and everything else going on in the world anyway hope everyone is keeping strong and safe and everyone's getting through the covid19 pandemic as best as possible but anyway for now enjoy this episode with pat davidson as always an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast it's been a while it's been uh it's been way too long for sure yeah you were just mentioning it's been since april so yeah. uh yeah lots lots changed since then and uh hope all is well with you how are you doing man listen as i said i probably said this last time we spoke but like my life is amazing. Like, I mean, I'm from a first world country. I live in a first world country. I don't have problems. What I have are privileges. And any problems that I do have, they're also privileges. So I've been reading a lot of Mark Manson lately, and he's just like, the whole meaning of life is to solve problems. So he's like, just make sure you've got good problems to solve. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's actually a really refreshing way to think about things. You know, you can sometimes get pulled into your own little uh, pity pot of problems and and just kind of lose perspective on the bigger picture kind of what i always say to myself is like whenever i catch myself like complaining or giving out i always step back and like this it's kind of like my default now to have it i all step back and then this voice in my head says robbie if this is the biggest problem in your life your life is amazing so like you know mm. like you know if, if like my phone died or not that I, not that I, that would even that would even bother me well actually i don't have a phone but if my ipod died um but you know, something like that, or if a piece of food went off that I was looking forward to eating, and I was like, oh, that sweet potato has gone off. I'd be like, listen, if it gone off sweet potato is the biggest problem in your life, your life is pretty easy. <laughs> you know, they start thinking about people who are told today that like, uh, you've got a stage four pancreatic cancer and, or whatever, or people fucking in Africa with their huts being burnt down or genocides we don't know about. So I think if, if there's anyone who's, who has the privilege to be able to listen to us speak right now, I think you know that your life's probably pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, and they get to hear us, so even Absolutely. better. So, Mayor, yeah. Uh, yeah, I haven't spoken since April. To be honest, the only reason I, I don't be hounding you, that's terrible English, be hounding, but I don't be hounding you is because I know you're very, very busy. Hold on one second. I think someone's knocking on my door here. Oh. No? Is <laughs> someone knocking at my door? Just give me a sec.
No, that was just the voices in my head. Oh, man. Um, but so you have earphones in my ears, so do you know why sometimes you hear something and you're like, is that not? Or is, what is that? Yeah, anyway, I know what you mean. As I was saying to you there, the only reason I uh, I don't try to be on to you every few weeks is I'd talk to you every day if I had the chance. It's just I know you're super busy. I know you're traveling around and you're doing a ton of seminars and you're just being Pat Davidson, changing the world, trying to be the next Verkashansky and even better because as we spoke about before you're like my goal in life now is to be the goddamn best sports science physiologist strength and conditioning personal training just the greatest human ever uh, I always laughed there was a video I saw of you one time at a Ben House seminar this was like years ago I think this was like one of the first times you probably met Ben it's not it's like it's an it's an old Vimeo video it's like yeah like Ben talking about you know uh, the preglenolone steel and steroid hormones and it's at the start of the talk and everyone's introduced themselves and it comes around to you and you just go, I'm Pat Davidson and I want to read all the books. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's Pat. All right. But uh, come here, catch us up on, on everything that's been going on since, since April. So you said a lot of things have changed. So I, I don't even know what, what's changed with you. So I'm interested to hear. Yeah. You know, I, when I think about like April, I believe that was uh, uh, like Mike Isretel, uh Gabrielle Fondaro and I were doing a seminar at Hype Gym in New York City uh, as a group at that point in time. And, um, you know, that was, that was a really a fantastic seminar. Like, I actually had never really gotten exposed to, to Mike's stuff previous to that. Mm. And, and just getting a chance to hear him really explain his model was, uh, was a huge game changer for me in terms of, of thinking about program design and sequencing exercises and, you know, just these, these concepts like, you know, moving in a training block from minimum effective volume up to maximum recoverable volume and having some subjective markers to identify where you are in that continuum. Uh, I, and, and, you know, changing your volume primarily through the addition of sets as opposed to repetitions or load, uh, you know, like th th those concepts were big and, and then just sort of like getting exposed to the stimulus, the, uh, stimulus fatigue ratio in terms of the way that exercises, uh, can impact each other and trying to, to make really good selections of exercises based upon that concept. Like those were all like, you know, I, I found myself just being really engrossed by his, his, uh, his talk and I'm, I'm really looking forward to when he finishes his uh his hypertrophy book that should be coming out in 2020 um so that's you know when i think about april like that that was kind of uh what was going on then and uh and really like since then i've, I've just sort of like uh been able to put together the rethinking the big patterns to seminar and i've taught that in a, a bunch of places since then the first one was in boston and then uh, I believe that was in June. And then after that, the Jim Ferris hosted one in Philadelphia and I've done, done them in Texas and Montreal. And, uh, you know, the last one was in, where the hell was it? Oh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, I've got a few more coming up. Uh, you know, you, you hooked me up with, with one that's going to be done in Slovenia and then I'll be doing one in April. Those will be in, uh, in March and April, I'll also be doing one in, in Los Angeles in March. So I've got a, a lot of those coming up. The, I guess the next one will be in Boston again in January 25th and 26th. So that, that seminar has been, been going pretty well. And, 
And really, I've also been working on on the book that's going to correspond with mm. with the rethink the big patterns model. And to me, that's the big one because you know I teach this two day seminar, and and it really does just scratch the surface of of the totality of this this concept. And and the book is is the biggest project I've ever worked on uh, by a large margin at this point in time. So I'm I, I you know and talking with Mike Isertel, I'm I'm planning on on uh, using renaissance periodization as the platform through which we'll sell this thing and uh there's a whole video series of of the exercise database that i filmed at hype gym that'll correspond with it so i i think that in terms of of my overall vision of of exercise uh you know from a categorization standpoint from a competency standpoint from a this is how you cue everything standpoint um this is what it should look like. You know, th this is the, the closest thing to being able to capture everything going on in my brain on that front and both put it on paper and on video and to try to present this thing uh, for, for people to have a, a weekend seminar exposure to it as well. So, you know, that's, that's been the, the primary thing that's been, been going on with me um, has, has been that, that overall project. I'm looking forward to uh, hanging out with you next year in Slovenia. Oh, you're going to be there? Well, he, M Matej, so for the listeners, it's Matej Hosevar, so that's Luca's brother. So uh, Luca and Matej have a facility in Slovenia where they're originally from, and obviously Luca has his facility up in uh, in Renton in Seattle and Washington. But uh, mm -hmm. Matej is on uh, the same strength and conditioning master's course that I'm on, and he, he connected with me we actually connected we met up there last summer while we were both at our on-site super cool guy had a great chat with him uh spent the evening with him and uh then he just contacted me through facebook and he says listen i want to get in touch with pat davidson so i was like yes you do believe me you do <laughs> so uh that's great i didn't I, I knew he was he was looking to get you over but i didn't know you guys had locked down a, a potential date so that's great to hear that you're going yeah, I think I think we might still have to just confirm last last details, but I think we're we're pretty much done deal for it being the last weekend of March, which I believe is the 28th and 29th. And, well, um, one thing I can tell you about the host of ours is if they say they're going to do something, they do it. Like they're they're, okay. they're, yeah. they're that type of people like is in if they say like this is locked in, here's the fee, here's everything. Like from everyone I've ever heard who's ever dealt with Luca or Matei, it's like they always deliver. So that I know yeah. if they, I know they brought Eric and Mike over to Slovenia, and then in regards to like Luca's facility up in Seattle, like that's where he he's had like some amazing events. Not only in his facility, but he also puts on that massive like fitness business um seminar he's put on the last two or three years. Like, and he's had like amazing people at it. So like. Yeah, mm. uh, it was actually there in 2017. Everybody who attended this the seminar that Luca put on, he bought them all Game Changer by Fergus Connolly, and like I'm talking like there was like hundreds of people at this, so he bought like over 100 copies of Game Changer for all the people that attended. Hmm. He's, he's mad. Cool. Like, he's yeah, he's mad. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, so not not the Game Changers vegan documentary. No, 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 the book by Fergus Connolly. Yes, I, I do you know what? I I don't even that Game Changer vegan documentary. I've only just seen like seen things that clip across on like you know podcast feeds, like people speaking about, it, and I've heard one or two people like I don't be on social media much, but I see it coming up and just comes into my head I'm like are we still having these yeah I like, know these superficial like conversations like it's just boggles my mind like that we're still having these 
debates about concepts and methods and it's like hold on what are underlying principles here and the you know the context of the situation it's just like like come on like does this even warrant attention yeah well the amazing thing like you know it you know i i my day-to-day gig is personal training people and their general population clients and so you know i have no awareness that this thing even exists but then like all of a sudden you start myself and every other person that works at hype we start getting all these questions about this thing and it's like oh god no like like you've clearly listened to nothing that any of us has said to you over the course of the entire time we've been working with you. Like, you know, so people just get pulled in with these things. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've made this comparison before with, uh, religion and diets and, and just sort of going out and saying like, you know, like, uh, humans created religion in many ways because of the, fact that like uh we're cognizant enough to realize that we're going to die like i think we're probably the only animal that has a firm grasp on the fact that like our life is finite and that death is inevitable and it's a really hard pill to swallow so if you can come up with some concept that has a greater meaning for why we're here and for a potential like uh you know escape clause after the fact it's soothing you know what i mean Mm. and and but in reality, you know, it's kind of like if, if anybody thinks that one of us has come up with the answer to this thing and written it down, like I think you're a little bit insane. Uh, so I've always kind of looked at it like religion is a place where normally very intelligent, uh, like sound of mind people sort of lose their minds and they do it because of the soothing nature of it. And and diet stuff is is very similar, like the like the pain of knowing that you're going to die caused this, you know, decision to make religion Mm. and, and the pain associated with hunger leads to people having to create these, these, uh, these mythological sorts of, of diet, you know, cult like things to follow. Um, And because people just can't deal with the fact that they're going to have to be uncomfortable on some level. So if, if there is this, pathway to follow that is grandiose and, and larger than life and mystical and mythical, then it, I think it gives people the dopamine rush to be able to handle the discomfort because the reward associated with following this greater than path is able to overcome the downside and the pain associated with hunger slash the downside and pain associated with knowing that you're going to not exist at some point yeah uh listen i've spoken uh, at length about uncertainty and death and 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 what we as 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 a species do to try and overcome that uncertainty and this is where we we get into these habitual habits or belief systems so like for some people it's a religious belief system for other people it's an ideological belief system for other people it's like we just spoke about there it's you know a diet yeah ideology to follow or you know a certain exercise regime or it's just it's habits within their lives that they cling to like a safety blanket and if they don't if they don't execute those habits on a daily basis or a very regular basis you know they start to feel like they're losing control and that's where you get like anxiety disorders i mean that is essentially what anxiety is is a lack of a lack of control you feel like you don't have control in your life and that's where a lot of these mental health issues come into too but yeah i know you studied dopamine and we spoke about dopamine a ton it's funny you just mentioned that because I've just been kind of thinking a little more about dopamine lately and, and just I heard um 
what's that guy's name again? The agent expert, uh, Aubrey de Grey. Is that his name? The English guy? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm very sure his name is Aubrey de Grey. He was on uh, Ben um, Ben Pocolti's podcast there. They were just speaking about agent and longevity, but he's, he's a researcher in longevity. And, uh, you know, he was talking about like how this, the, um, the like dopamine the what's the name of the thing again this uh substantia Ni- niagara in the brain yep. how like that really starts to degenerate as we age and obviously that has an effect then on dopamine's output and then we know that dopamine is a huge player in parkinson's disease and other yep. neurogenerated diseases and i'm just thinking that like you know a lot of the environmental mismatches that are currently within our our world right now is leading to people biologically aging faster than they should be like we're seeing people now in their 20s and 30s breaking down with chronic degenerative diseases that weren't becoming apparent like until people 60s or 70s two or three decades ago like so you're seeing people in their 20s and 30s now with osteoporosis and macular degeneration and even cancers are becoming more prevalent in younger age people and it's like biologically we seem to be aging quicker and what what that made me think was that like geez people are probably like losing their dopamine uh, faster too like and if you think about it it makes sense because how many like addictions are gone up with opioids and phones and people are just wanting dopamine now now mm-hmm. now now because they're probably so low in dopamine already like their dopamine reserve that should be that should be still going well until their seventh eighth or ninth decade is probably being used up by the time they're in their 20s and 30s and i'm just i was just thinking about that when when aubrey de gray had said that that like you know dopamine is a huge huge factor in longevity because it keeps us motivated and obviously if, yeah. you lose, if you lose motivation as a species it's like oh why get up and try and survive now like from an evolutionary standpoint so it just made me think of that but uh listen we're, yeah, we're, we're being very pessimistic here ben house would be slapping us on the wrist saying just get up and be an animal yeah well i mean look like uh i think that i think most things work within like uh concentric circles in many ways you know it's almost like uh but but there's like ascending tracks and descending tracks like you know, in some ways, I'll 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 be very anti-religion in one moment and very pro-religion in the other moment. But I I, I think it's very possible to find both like, uh, you know, ascension and descension within our time on this planet. Like mm-hmm. I think that those concepts of heaven and hell are really just to tell us what is going to potentially happen in any moment of your life at any point in time. Like most of us are just here in purgatory because we're so far away from being in the present moment in time mm. that we can't appreciate much of anything. And, and you always have it within your power from like a thought process and decision-making standpoint to be able to take one viewpoint that has this ascending concentric circle association with it or the mm. opposite. This, and, and then it's kind of like the more that you get into one of those concentric circle realms, it's like a vortex. You just get stuck in it and you, you, you spin in it faster and faster and faster. And uh, at any point in time, you could choose to really move yourself out of it, but it's hard to do that because of like just the behavioral habitual patterns that we tend to get into as a thinking and acting animal on this planet. But um, yeah, I I mean, like if you're doing really well on this planet and you're getting all of the rewards associated with it, you're just going to perpetuate that and continuate that and expect that from yourself. And, and then sure, it's easy to be an animal, but, but on the opposite side of it, like if you're, you know, it, it's a very much like the world is very much more capitalistic, I think, than communistic, uh, you know, to the victor goes the spoils in some ways. But you're either somebody or you're nobody in a lot of ways, like there's very little in between. Um, 
and, and it's, it's hard. It's hard to like make your own way towards the top. But if you get there, it's very self-rewarding and it just perpetuates itself. So it's, it's, I, I think it's, it's, there's the easy way of just saying like, ah, just, you know, be an animal or whatever. And, and if you're already doing that, then it's easy to continue to do that. Mm. On the flip, it's, it's, uh, it's almost an impossible thing to do. Yeah. It's um, like, as we spoke about before, like with Alan Watson, then when you kind of step back and think, listen, you need contrast. Like, you know, you, you wouldn't know left without right. You wouldn't know dark, dark without light, night without day, man without woman, hot without cold. So when you realize that, like everything is because it needs to be, you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's all just part of the journey. But I recently just read Mark Manson's second book there, Everything is Fucked. Like, and he talks about, uh, in, 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 in his name, I, I all struggle to say his first name. Emmanuel, that's it, yeah, Emmanuel Kant. Emmanuel mm-hmm. Kant, uh, he talks about um, the formula for humanity. And basically Kant says that like where, where, where we want, where we need to go basically in terms of our thinking as a species is to stop treating everything as a means and just treat every moment as an end of it in itself. So it's just like, just like basically it was just in a way of saying be present and like not only be present with moments but be present with people. So like, he says, how many times like do people use other people? And he says, you're using someone as a means to get to an end. So like, let's say like I haven't spoken to you in months. I'm like, and then I just go, hey, Pat, how are you doing? And I start doing small talk and I don't really care. I, I just want to get to like a, the point in the conversation where I go, right. by the way, can you do me a favor? You know, that kind of way. Yeah. So, uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Kant's sort of uh, form of humanity is like, once we can get to a place where everything is just an end in of itself, like, oh, it's a beautiful day. And that's it. It's a beautiful day. Or I'm 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 doing this training set like his his whole thing is that we usually are doing something because we think we're gonna get something for it and he's like you're treating yeah. every single thing as a means rather than like I'm just doing this training session because I want to do this training session rather than like I'm doing this so I can eat that whopper meal later and then when you get into yeah. Buddhism when you get into Buddhism it's like oh you've been looking forward to this meal all day but that meal is eventually gonna to come to an end and then it's just gonna pass and it's like oh now it's gone. So like it's, yeah. it's it's fleeting anyway. Like so, it's kind of come to that place of acceptance that, like, okay, like like pleasure won't last. But also flip on that as pain won't last. It's all, it's all fleeting. It's like as as Lincoln said, this too shall pass. And it's kind of what the Buddhist mess the, the Buddha's message was as well, because his whole thing, the, the story of the Buddha was that his whole thing was like, oh, you have to go out and suffer to get meaning and then after years of suffering he realized actually no no you don't because <laughs> he was starving himself and passing and then like he just he, he realized this is ridiculous and then he went off and had a meal and sat under a tree and said i'm not leaving until i become enlightened he's like he's like it doesn't matter if it's pleasurable or if it's painful it's all fleeting it's just all like it, it, it's all basically in in one regard pointless and the the meaning of anything is that you give meaning to it it was just it's kind of just refreshing and enlightening but again it's it's always easier to step back and at a conscious sort of more cortical levels accept that and you know understand it but then it's another thing to try and live these principles too you know? <laughs> yeah that is the kicker right there because you know there has to be some uh evolutionary adaptable reason for why we are you know so not present as an animal mm. you know and, and, and I think that being present is a luxury in some ways, or, or is it? Maybe it's not. It's, maybe it's the removal of all luxury, because if you are living outside in the wild, you have to be present. Your survival depends upon it. Yeah. Uh, the moment that you're escaped from the moment-to-moment survival existence, 
now all of a sudden you have the luxury to be able to to plan for the future and to imagine a better outcome mm. and and i think that that there's value in being able to imagine a better outcome you know i i think about like you know noah yuval harari's sapiens book where he gets into talking about credit as a as a thing like that you know for the majority of time that we've even lived as quote unquote civilized western humans uh life was pretty much the same you know for for the majority of the humans that that existed like uh there were very few people that made up the nobility class the rest of us bombs were basically like peasantry um and and like life didn't really change much from let's say like i don't know 800 to 1810 you know and mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden with the industrial revolution uh things have changed dramatically in like the last 200 and whatever years but like the the vast stretch like it didn't like if you if you lived in 1250 versus uh 917 life was pretty much exactly the same yeah. you know there were very little differences in technology uh food store food stores were were relatively the same uh nowadays it's incredibly different but you know he was making the point that one of the things that led to that that we really have a hard time conceptualizing is that credit became a thing and and now all of a sudden if you were a potential like merchant class person you could take out a loan and start a business and grow and and that was a, a major driver of, of everything that took place leading to industrialism and leading to postmodernism, and and blah 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 but no one ever imagined a better future really uh, up until that point because why would you there's no shot for it to be different Nowadays, there are literally, there's, there's a lot of examples of people who have dramatically changed their lives from a socioeconomic standpoint mm. that are standing right in front of you. And it's kind of like, if they can do it, why can't I do it sort of a thing? And, and you know, we, you can, I think people can, can, can speculate on this all they want about, well, is life really better when you have... $20 million versus $50,000 a year or something like that. And, and I would say, yeah, it probably is better. You know what I mean? Like there's maybe some data that shows that you get up to a certain amount of income and then it's not really that much better, but maybe rich people just tell you that because they don't want everybody else to be rich too. Uh, I don't really know, but, but I think that uh, there, you know, we are living in this time now where uh, the ability to imagine a better, version of you a better situation for you is present and and like it's got to be tied to something that's important and and to just say that like you know the secret is to not tap into that part of you and to simply be as present as you possibly can be in some ways to me is is naive you know mm -hmm. in some ways it's it's like it's ignoring something that is so clearly there it's like you know, it's this elephant in the room that we're supposed to just pretend like isn't there. Uh, so I, I just wonder about those things. Like, you know, and it's like me being like, oh, I question the wisdom of the Buddha. Like, who the hell am I? You know, but, but I think that it, we all have the right to make these kinds of questions. And, and particularly when you've just lived and felt things and associate things and, and you just start to wonder more and more like, ooh, you know, we're, who is anyone to say that, that something like, you know, is my pinky toe not important? 
you know, is, mm. is this, it's, it's all a part of me. Uh, and, and like my imagination is just as much a part of me as my index finger. So I don't know. I, I just find this stuff fascinating and, and really more important than what people give it credit for. Yeah. Listen, absolutely. And again, like, I suppose the only person who could really answer what truly was the Buddha's message would be the Buddha himself, whether he was a real, yeah. ent- where, whether, whether he was a real person or whether it was just a fable of the story, but you get what I mean? Like I, I think too, like anything, nothing is an absolute, most things are on a spectrum. So to say like, it always need to be present. I think that more, more the idea is to be able to tap into being more present at certain times, because without question, if, if we couldn't like project into the future, like we wouldn't have went to the moon. We wouldn't have iPhones. We wouldn't be talking right now. So there obviously is a benefit to be able to project into the future for imagination and creation and whatnot. And just on the point too about like, you know, millionaires versus someone who's earning 50 grand a year. Like my take on that is it's all relative to the person because usually like when you, when you hear someone who's like a billionaire, people go, oh, they're a billionaire. Their life must be unreal. But it's like, yeah, but they've got billionaire problems. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Whereas, whereas you have middle-class problems. So if you became the billionaire, you just be a billionaire with no billionaire problems. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I was thinking Tony Robbins and Tony Robbins was like, yeah, I'm, I'm investing in all these companies and some have gone bankrupt. And I'm like, man, you can keep that lifestyle. I, I personally would not want that whatsoever. I, you know, I would be far more, um, far more, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, satisfied isn't the word, but uh, content. I'd be far more content. You know, you could get somebody who all they want is to live on their own in a nice little apartment or a cottage or wherever. And they've got like nice little 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 saved up in the bank. They don't have any debts. They don't own any money. All they want to do every day is just to go for walks and lift some weights and read some books and have good deep conversations with people. And that fulfills them. Whereas you get somebody who's earning a trillion dollars, is invested in 12 companies, flies all over the world, stressed to the absolute bollocks, hasn't laughed in ages, has no sex drive. And people would look at those people and go, Jesus, your man who's a trillionaire must have some lifestyle. Mm. So again, it's, it's, all, yeah. it's all relative to, to the individual. And again, like you can get some people who do love that lifestyle. Like, you know, like a lot of people get on Gary Vee, but it's like, Gary Vee seems to love what he does, even though like from, from a health standpoint, it probably isn't the health, it, not, it, it, not probably, it isn't the healthiest lifestyle we have. But if that's what he tries off and he knows the trade-off he's making in terms of his family relationships and his health, because I've heard him talk about that, well, then there's no judgment to it. Yeah. I think that's really it. Like, you know, there's, there's just so many different kinds of people out there. And if you have an idea for maybe like, I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've, I've had like at hype, we, we have, I, I love the people I work with, you know, I really do. And we have ridiculous conversations. Uh, we have great conversations, like everything in between, but you know, one of them that kind of reoccurs is like, Hey, like if you all of a sudden won Powerball and you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, more than you could ever imagine. Uh, what would you like, first of all, like what would be your first purchase that you would make that was just exclusively for yourself but then uh you know what do you what what would you envision your day being like like Mm. uh what is your what would you pick as like this kind of your groundhog day sort of existence and and i think like for me like i've I've kind of said like i don't think much would really change to tell you the truth (laughs) like other other than the fact that i i would probably not train my afternoon people I would probably come in, train my morning people, work out with the same guys that I work out Mm -hmm. with and then just be done for the day and be able to come home 
and have more time to write and read. Um, and you'd still bitch him. You'd still bitch him on about the trap bar kicking her ass, even though you're a hundred million richer. Fucking. Man. Oh yeah, yeah. I'd still. It would still drive me crazy. Like I can't believe I can't add another ten pounds to this thing. Like you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I, I really don't think there would be that much. I don't think I would move. I don't even think. I, I mean, I'm sure my, my wife would probably want to upgrade the uh, apartment that we're living in. Mm. But like, I I don't. I wouldn't. I would literally not feel any need to leave the current apartment I'm living in. Uh, I wouldn't change who I spent time with. I wouldn't change the fact that I like going to work. I like doing everything that I'm doing. You know, like I really don't see anything particularly changing, which is, is, so it's like, I don't have anything that I, that I want that I can't already have access to. I would, you know, it, it would be, it would just literally be like, there's some days where I'm like, I really don't feel like being here until, you know, 8 PM or something like that. Mm-hmm. I would much rather be home earlier so that I could have, I really enjoy the time that I can spend where I can actually consistently write and read yeah. and yeah. go into topics. And, and sometimes I just can't do that because I still have to earn an income uh, from my primary day to day. So, mm-hmm. so that would really be the, the big change it would, would, that's it. But other than that, like, wouldn't be much different. Yeah. 22. Uh, I, I actually, I do want to talk about um, rethinking the big patterns, which, you, which we'll get into in a second. But just we're having a good conversation here. But final thing I was thinking of, again, uh, just from reading Mark Manson's book. And these aren't things that were, like, uh, brand new to me. But they just kind of, they kind of re- reignited the, the, the top processes in my mind. But, you know, if, if you had asked me, what do you think the meaning of life is? Like I, my, my standard sort of answer, and I don't want to say standard cause that makes it sound like it's a very fixed answer, but my, my answer had been for the, for, for the last previous while or time period that, you know, every human being wants the same thing, which is happiness, you know, which is like, I, I'd often phrase it as like, they, everybody wants to attain their own heaven on earth. Now how people go about that is where we uh, individualize. So like for a musician, it's creating music. And for a chef, it's creating a master meal. And for me and you, it could be coaching or educating other coaches. And, you know, if it's a teacher, it's teaching students and seeing their, you know, seeing their eyes come alight when they actually figure something out and the teacher realizes that they, they learned from them, you know, that kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so, so d- d- different, different ways people, you know, create and bring creation into the world and share that then to everyone in it. But I, I would have said that, you know, really what it is, is people finding, attaining their own heaven on earth or bliss or happiness. But then I heard um, Brian Rose, he basically said a, a quote from um, uh, Jordan Peterson. And Peterson said that you shouldn't chase happiness. What you should chase is meaning. And what Peterson said was that you could get somebody who you could say they're not actually happy. They have a lot of suffering in their life, but they have a lot of meaning through their suffering mm. so that kind of just made me think a little more that because i've often because another answer i've often given when people say to me what do you think the meaning of life is and i say the meaning of life is to give it meaning and and it's up to each individual to give life its own meaning so like your meaning what, what, what life means to you is up to you like you've been given your life and however you want to attain meaning is up to you whereas i've been given my life and how i want to attain meaning is up to me so whatever avenues or whatever mediums you know we want to create meaning in our lives is is up to us as individuals so that kind of has made me think to that maybe more so instead of happiness it's meaning we're striving for 
because that's kind of what Manson alluded to in the book too that you know it's more about it's more about attaining meaning more so than like happiness and then he he speaks about this thing called the blue the blue dot effect and and how this sort of relates to me and you like me and you both know about the law of accommodation you know so the same stimulus over and over again you know the the the, mm. the, the organism yeah. just gets used to it you know it, it just accommodates to it it stagnates to the same stimulus so manson says like basically they did this uh there was this like research where they kind of looked at people's like quote-unquote happiness levels on a scale of zero to ten and he's like nearly everyone when you took in like you know the average the the, the mean it's like everyone's like at a seven all the time <laughs> so like it's just like you know i'm i'm a little more happier than like okay I'm not miserable, but I'm not, I'm not elated. And he says, what happened was that when someone had something amazing happen in their life, they were at a nine and a 10, but then after a while they slip back to a seven. And then if something really bad happened, they slip down to a one, two or three, but then they go back up to a seven again. So his whole thing is that like, we kind of just live in, it's like we're on a seesaw and we're mostly usually just centered. And then life just basically is about going up and down. And like, like Alan Watts, the contrast of having up and down, do you know what I mean? But we're kind of just always, floating in around that seven like so they're just some thoughts have been in my head lately this kind of meaning maybe versus happiness and that you know what is the meaning of life i mean the meaning of life is to give it meaning and then how people attain meaning is is up to up to themselves in terms of what they bring into creation on a moment-to-moment basis very beautiful it really is uh listen i fucking i could talk about this stuff all day particularly with someone like yourself come here though um just before we get into rethinking the big patterns, I want you to touch on how the seminars evolved because I heard you on a podcast with um, Derek and Don Saladino mm-hmm. on the D and D podcast, and you were speaking about like how the first one, you know, you videoed with Zach Couples, and you were kind of saying like, you know, it was the first run through, it was a bit raw, and then you started to refine it. So maybe speak about that refinement process. Yeah, so that one would would have been the first rethinking the big patterns one seminar, and um, you know, so so it's. Obviously, like uh, the most raw, the most, uh, you know, non, I I don't know exactly what the the best terms are, but it's evolved quite a bit since then. And, you know, I, I, I taught a few of those rethinking the big patterns, one seminars. And then after teaching, teaching three, four, five, whatever it was that I did, I actually sat down and I wrote out, uh, like I just, I, I just wrote it, the, the seminar out as like a document and, and I divided it into two documents and I actually put both of those documents on, on Carl Valley's uh, Simply Faster website. You know, one of them is called uh, like an objective biomechanics model for program design. And the other one is called uh, something along the lines of like competencies for exercises or something like that. Um, but to me that, that was rethinking the big patterns. One was, a categorical model for being able to classify every form of trainable movement and then a uh, a checklist that would identify whether or not the movements that you were doing were competent based upon whether they were primarily sagittal frontal or transverse plane movements and that's that's to me like a like a really useful model in a lot of ways like identify what exactly is it that you are doing uh, and then identify whether or not you're doing it properly and uh that i so that's rethinking the big patterns one and then rethinking the big patterns two as a as a model is really all about like now that we have these established categories that things exist in uh and we have these these checklists for for knowing whether or not you're doing things properly 
what is it exactly that would make something the easiest version of the concept that you're trying to train and how would I systematically make it progressively more challenging? Uh, so I created a 10 point uh, list of principles that would guide you into understanding how to make an exercise easier for people to do properly. And, and based upon these principles, it basically instructs you on how to construct the exercise so that you're giving the person the greatest probabilistic chance of doing the activity properly to train the appropriate tissues and to create the lasting memory for how this overall movement expression should be done so that with future variations, they're able to just make the transition and understand it very easily so that we can progress this person from a difficulty standpoint and from like a training load standpoint. I actually never spoke with this. What initiated rethinking the big patterns? Well, okay. uh, you know, I, I did the, the reckoning at Mike Ranfone's place, and mm. that was myself, Bill Hartman, and Doug Kachigian. And at that seminar, Bill made that statement of, uh, you know, you should write out your model. No, really, write out your model. And, uh, and I know that it made a big impact on Ben House, and it also made a big, big impact on me, mm. where it was like, okay, well, what is my model? Because, you know, I, I do a pretty good job of being able to train the people that I work with on a daily basis. And I've done a lot of work with, uh, you know, when I was at peak performance with the trainers that were there. And since then, like uh, a lot of the guys that, that I've known since I've been in New York City, like uh, Ethan and Vinny Brandstatter and, um, and, and other people that have just been kind of in our circle for the entire time that I've been, in, been there, like, you know, these guys have, have sort of learned similar stuff like we're all on a very similar kind of system that's been influenced by you know the likes of pri and bill hartman um you know certainly like my early development was very strongly influenced by mike boyle even before that like uh, kettlebell training and west side barbell and usaw weightlifting based standards and uh you know like all of these things like Derek Hansen when it comes to sprinting and Lee Taft when it comes to change of direction and, mm. you know, countless other people. And, 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 you know, I, I profess myself to be someone that's not particularly the expert in any one area, but where I think I'm really good at is, is being able to take everything and put it into one holistic model that actually allows you to be able to, you know, organize it appropriately. And, and so in many ways, it's kind of like when I watch, when I watch Vinny train people, he does a great job. He puts it all together very effectively. You know, when I watch somebody like Seth Regani, who's, who's a guy that we have at Hype, a uh, really smart guy who I, I don't think a lot of people know, uh, but, you know, I, he's a great coach. He's, he, you know, he's been at Hype since the beginning. Like, uh, you know, he's been at pretty much everything I've taught. Like he, he really understands this model. I see him coach people. He does an amazing job. Uh, you know, I, I would say I would take those two guys and, and say that their ability to coach people and develop people is as good as almost anybody in the world. 
And yet, you know, probably the majority of coaches in the world don't know who either of those two guys are. Which is um, great. Which is great, to be honest. It's, re- yeah. it's, re- it's refreshing. Cause so- sorry to interrupt. And, and uh, we, you haven't interrupted me. And, and it's actually been very good to have the conversation with Lon, So I'll be very quick here. But, uh, you know, people always go, oh, he's the best coach in the world. I'm like, just, you can't say that. <laughs> the best coach in the world is probably something we don't even know. It's, they're, they're often the back arsehole of nowhere with like probably a thousand kids running an unbelievable program. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, you know, so what I wanted to be able to do was I wanted to see if I could put down on paper the ability to replicate myself in other coaches anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. If you just simply read these instructions, you should be able to do everything that I do. And and, uh, you know, I've told Bill before, like, you know, I, I sort of said, like, uh, Bill, you know, your, your intensive is like, uh, it's like instructing someone to be a chef that would be able to compete in the Boku store. And like the Boku store is like the international highest level chef competition with these in, incredible creations. Like, you know, these people would know the name of the cow that was slaughtered and uh, how many days aged the, the meat was and what the diet of the cow was. They know everything from the inside out. And, and then once they're there, they can basically, uh, they have their own working mind as an architect to be able to put anything on, down on paper as a blueprint. And, uh, and, and what I was saying for rethinking the big patterns was, is that I'm, I'm almost trying to make people like good McDonald's uh, cashiers and and the cash register at McDonald's has the picture of the Big Mac on it so that when somebody orders the Big Mac, they just press the picture. And what do you know, out comes a Big Mac. Uh, they don't even really have numbers so much anymore. Mm. They just have pictures of the things that people order. So it's it's not like uh, when when the when you take that weekend seminar and, and it's look, it's like a, 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 a comical statement because you know, if you take rethinking the big patterns, I'm going to go into a tremendous number of mechanisms and explanation of what's happening behind the scenes, but not to the same degree as Bill. Um, you know, uh, but if you take this seminar, in theory, you should be able to be able to produce the same outcomes I produce based upon understanding the competencies of movements, uh, based upon being able to uh, a categorize movements into these this trainable menu and you should be able to make the same decisions I make in terms of what level of difficulty is appropriate for the person that's standing in front of you uh, and what is the correct way to make the exercise either easier or more difficult based upon principles uh, so like have you, have you ever read uh, Ray Dalio's book principles I, I haven't read it, but what I will say is I've heard him interviewed about the book uh, num- numerous times, particularly his one with Tim Ferriss, and I'm I'm very aware of who he is. Yeah, you know, I, I um, you know, just briefly for anybody that doesn't know who he is, he was the founder of of the Bridgewater Group hedge fund, and Bridgewater is the largest wealthiest hedge fund in the world. And, um, you know, if people are familiar with some of the concepts that uh, Noah Yuval Harari brings up, and I believe Homo Deus about, uh, you know, algorithm decision making from computers, 
uh, Ray Dalio is essentially the, one of the pioneers of creating these computer algorithms that guide you to being able to make probabilistically more correct decisions going forward. So, you know, he gives, he, he tells a little bit about the story of creating these computer algorithms in this book. And, and he was saying that what he did was um, he, he was able to take the history of every country on the planet that has had a market and put it into computers. Like the entire, you know, in, in 1912 in Ireland, this is what the economy presented and this is what the market did. And, and, uh, and what he, he tried to do was he typed in these principles and he saw how they played out over the course of every economic history in every country throughout our, our history as a, as, a, as a species with money and currency. Uh, so he could test these things out historically. And, and he was able to boil it down and refine these principles and essentially throw out what didn't work and keep what actually was working. And, and really, I was inspired by that to, uh, to try to create as close as I could to these principles that, that just always work. Like if you just simply follow these 10 principles, you will always have the correct outcome for, for what you're trying to obtain from the exercise. And if your exercise is not working, you have to examine it through the lens of these principles and be able to figure out why exactly is this exercise not working for the person in front of you. And interestingly enough for me, um, you know, I fail every day as a coach. And every time that I, I am witnessing the person that's in front of me not, not getting the proper result from the activity I've chosen for them, I put it back into this list of 10 principles and I start to identify the problems that I've created with the choice that I made. And I just kind of go back through it and I say, Oh, okay, well, I, I made this error with this, this activity. I'm going to change it in the way that I wrote down for myself. And what do you know? Now the person is giving me the proper feedback that I wanted to hear in the first place. I wasn't following my own rules. Mm. So you know, that, that really is, is to me, it's like, I, I, I can't help myself, but to teach mechanisms and to try to explain to people what's going on under the hood. Uh, but literally the point of the seminar is to be the most useful thing that a coach could ever sit through. And if you just simply follow these rules, you will nail the exercise for the person that you're trying to coach with the highest probability level that, that could be given to you. Man, that's pretty comprehensive. Do you know what? I think we said this before, but the intensive is definitely something that needs to be retaken again. Yeah, I took it, you know, a second time. I was at one and I was at seven. Oh, and it really? changed quite a bit. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say, because I'd say it has changed a little bit. Yeah, so I was at two, so... I definitely, it's it's definitely a educational event that, you know, I don't even want to say events, doesn't really do justice, but an experience, that's the word I want to think of. It's definitely an education experience that you do need to do more than once because, again, you know yourself, like, there, there is a reason why it's called the intensive. Yeah, I mean, for people that don't know Bill, like, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a special person. He's Yoda. And... Yeah, literally. Uh, is it amazing how much his jaw has changed over the last two years? 
Yeah, his whole face. Like it's it's crazy. Yeah. It's, yeah every really time is. I see him, I'm just like that face just keeps changing. Like for the better. Like you know, he's he's, he's done. Uh, he's got amazing work done through through the dental work that he's had done. Come here, a, a question for you, Pat. Um, just a little bit out of left field, but when you're putting when you're putting um presentations together or like books together or your thoughts together, do you do it more so for you yourself? Or do you do it like to say, here, this is for the world? Like, so basically the kind of question getting at was, let's say someone said, let's say you just knew no one would ever buy anything you ever made. Would you still make it just because you inherently wanted the answers for yourself? Yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm the same. Like I, yeah, I sent over, I sent to Bill, like where I was at with the book, you know, just to get some feedback from it. And um, he goes, who's your audience? And I said, I don't, I don't ever think about the audience to tell you mm. the truth though. I, I write it for myself. Yeah. I'm the audience. And he goes, Oh, okay. Now it makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like those classic comedians who like, you know, I actually, these are my favorite comedians when they really go on stage and it's just as long as they have fun, they don't give a fuck. Do you know, like they make those mm-hmm. jokes, they make those jokes too, so they get a reaction from the from the crowd. You know, you often see like George Carlin used to do it, and Jim Jeffries does it, and then Louis C.K. does it sometimes. He'll drop a joke in where like he just wants it purely just for the reaction of the crowd. Like, I remember mm-hmm. he, made, he made this like pedophilia joke, I'm not going to say it here, but like he made this pedophilia joke, like, and the whole crowd kind of goes, Ooh, and he goes, I'm just joking, I'm just joking. That was just for me, that was just for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I under like you know, I've learned over time that I actually uh, it's weird it's like I teach myself while I'm writing things down what's well, how um, you learn that's that's consolidation I, that, that's kind of where I was yeah. getting with that question it's kind of like what drives I think and I don't want to speak for you but what what drives me is and I and I, I say this and I also know that this isn't fully true either but what drives me is to get to the truth to get the answers and, and what I what, and the reason why I say that that's not that's not really a, a comprehensive full answer because n- like nothing's a hundred percent certain and nothing is a hundred percent true because I mean, I mean, we're humans and we're, we're the subjective species bringing this knowledge into creation. So it's always going to have some, t- some hints of subjectivity to it. Like that's why we have the field of statistics, but what drives me is trying to get as close to the truth to the question I'm trying to answer. So like, again, you could turn around and say, listen, you're not going to make any money off this or you're not going to, no one, no one else cares about this. It's like, yeah, but I care. So like, what was, so that's kind of where I was going with this question is that like that, that's enough to drive me to go after something. So and I, I felt that was the same with you. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like while I'm writing anything, um, you know, I think that, that my brain has been trained to try to pick holes in things. You know, it's, it's just what I do. I can't, you can't help it at this point. Uh, I hear someone talk, I read someone's writing and I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for the errors, you know, mm. where's the, where's the hole, where's the hole, where's the hole up? Oh, there it is. This is where the sweater unravels. If I just pull this thread and, um, and I feel like when I'm writing, I'm doing the same thing, mm. you know, where, where is the loose thread for me to unravel this whole thing from? And, uh, and I'm pretty good at it. So, and I think that I'm probably going to be one of my own harshest critics on this front. So, you know, like, as I'm going through trying to explain anything or put something together, the entire time I'm trying to rip it to shreds, uh, which makes it a slower process. But in that process, like when I, when I'm having to, it's almost like playing chess against myself. 
you know? And like the way that your brain thinks when you're trying to, to like problem solve and troubleshoot and okay, I'm going to move my rook three positions forward. And like, I've come to this decision because I've mitigated risk and I've advanced reward potentially to the greatest degree that I possibly can based upon all of these other combinations of the way that these other pieces could attack and slide and like, you know, so, and, and like your brain is making so many new connections and synapses are firing in ways that you could never imagine. And, and in many ways, like I feel exhausted after I go through an hour of writing. Um, but I love that process and, and it's such a, it makes things so much more solid and concrete in my brain after I go through that process. It's like, but it's like literally being at war with myself while I'm at that keyboard. And, and there's very few things that I've found that are, uh, that are equal to the, to the kind of satisfaction I get from that process. Uh, so it's, it's really, a it's a unique experience for me. And that's why I like to be able to write. I really enjoy having that at my disposal because like I, I found that I like chess and I found that I like golf. Like those are things that of, of in the last couple of years are actually like hobbies that I enjoy. And, and in large part, because it's like, you know, it's, it's such a problem solve the both of them are problem solving activities. And, and you can witness yourself get better via mistakes and, uh, and, and you can really like think about what happened in the aftermath for quite a while. Um, and, and there seems to be like some strategies and principles that you can use to guide you. And, and it's just, uh, but I, I love everything about the process. And I, I also just think that, that most people don't get to enjoy the the, the results and the effects of taking their implicit knowledge and trying to make it explicit. And then after it becomes explicit, then returning back to the implicit. Because when you're working on the implicit level, after you've gone through the explicit process, your day-to-day -day functioning is going to be much closer to mastery than it ever was before you went through the explicit process. Mm. I mean, that that is what mastery is it's, it's that refinement you know so like like we kind of just touched on with rethinking the big patterns i mean there was rethinking the patterns 1.0 and you're like this could be better so that's why there's 2.0 and just like you alluded to at the intensive you're like i was at seven and it's changed since one because again it's been more refined because again yeah. the le level of mastery is continuing to go up it's it's like that you know like i always think of michelangelo's or michelangelo if you want to say michelangelo's david and you're just like, you know, obviously he started out with a big block of marble and he just kept going at it and at it until it became the masterpiece that it became, you know. So that is what mastery is. It's just that refinement and refinement and refinement. But um, yeah, definitely. Come here. What's the, where are you with Kaiser at the moment? Because I know that was something else he spoke about. We spoke about yeah. it previously and then he also spoke about it with Derek and Don and their podcast. Uh, is that still in the pipeline? Oh yeah, it's always happening. Um, you know, right now, like, uh, you know, uh, Ethan and I have hired a software company. Uh, they're, they've been working with Kaiser to a certain degree about um, being able to create this overall scoring concept. And uh, it's been really interesting. You know, the, the, the company that we have, they've, 
the hardest part for them was actually getting the data out of the Kaiser equipment itself. Mm. Uh, they were having to build special plugs to be able to put into the Kaiser. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting in talking with the Kaiser folks, they were almost saying like they, they made their stuff hard to take the data out of because they didn't want the Chinese to just uh, completely copy it. Uh, <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? Cause they, they just sort of do that. They just make these knockoff versions uh, as soon as they're able to, to get, get the information out of it. So, you know, Kaiser has their algorithm for how they exactly give you their power score. That's, that's part of like just the, the binary code that's inside of the computers that they use inside the machines. So it was very difficult to actually get that information out of there. So it's almost like our guys, uh, they were building new plugs to be able to interface with that, with the, with the, the, you know, the leg press and the racks and everything else to be able to actually extract the data. Uh, and they finally were able to like with Kaiser, like create something that, uh, that accomplishes this. So literally this week after working on this for a couple of months, they, they finally started pulling the data out of the machines and have it now. Like, I don't, you know, what they're trying to explain to me is, is like, I don't understand what they're saying. Like, um, but the analogy that the guy gave me was like, uh, okay, so imagine that you have purchased this really great car. Like, it's an amazing car. It does stuff that, that no car has previously done before. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. But it, it runs on fuel. It's just that it's fuel that no one's ever seen before. So we have to make our own new fuel for this car. We just don't know what the fuel actually is at this point. Uh, so we have to build new fuel to be able to power this thing. So he's like, that's basically the process that we're going through right now in terms of the acquisition of the data. But once we figure out what exactly the new fuel is for this car, it's going to be easy from there. Now it's just the process of driving this car. So they actually did solve whatever the hardest part of this was. Uh, which was just figuring out a way to get the data out of there. Now they have their people that work with code actually just deciphering what the code means. And, and once they've been able to do that, now they can, they can build this system that will be able to score these workouts. You know, the exciting stuff for us is that um, they were saying that, that what they'll be able to build for us down the road with future uh, generations of this will be something that can be used outside of just Kaiser itself too. Like any, any device that's capable of like, uh, you know, like knowing the, the load of a barbell and knowing the velocity at which the implement traveled and the range of motion that it traveled at, uh, you know, we'll be able to, to create, you know, just this, this, it, like basically we could take a look at your whole, rather most of these pieces of equipment just look rep to rep. You know what I mean? They're not thinking beyond like, oh, this rep did this. But like what, what I'm more interested in is, is what is your total output for your training session? You know, um, and, and then once we have this total output, we can then break it down from there and, and look at individual movements and, and go backwards. But uh, ultimately, like if, if I can display to you and, and what I like is, you know, with a lot of these sports science gadgets that like measure things, 
they're either they're like kind of annoying. Have you ever used the, the med ball that kind of measures velocity for how hard you throw it? Yeah, it's shit. It sucks. It like you know what I mean? It, it breaks after like ten throws. Yeah, and it's like you have to stop and wait and see what the score was and blah blah blah. Uh, you know, with with this, it's like you're still just doing your whole workout. It's just after the fact you get to see what was the actual output of your workout. You know, did you did you did you improve on some level here? You know, and and it's all these levels that you have. There's more than just load on the bar. Like, hey, if you move through more range of motion, that's a really good thing that's showing signs of progress. And we're able to give you that kind of feedback and display it with one singular score. Um, so, yeah, cause, so cause really, like, that's the. So, sorry, because then, like, another thing too that pops to mind is like, how often have you seen like someone goes, "Oh yeah, I, I lifted more weight today," but it's like, yeah, but you took five extra minutes between each set, so like, yeah. your, actual, your actual work, your rate of work actually is down since your last session, or or you know, since the last couple of sessions. So like, you know, that's why I, I really do like your thought processes because it's something I've thought about too. I, I think like I, we discussed this like on on a, one of our podcasts a while back where like I was actually asking about like, you know, there has to be some sort of equation that comes up with quantifying load where it's, you know, basically like the density of work too, you know? So, cause yeah. we know, you know, you know, we know that, that, uh, we know that, you know, power work, work times distance over, uh, over time, like our work or work multiplied by this well, it's actually displacement really is, isn't it? But, um, mm-hmm. But whatever, it's just you know, it's just yeah. Work, work, work by work multiplied by uh, distance over time. Like basically, it's giving you you know, it's velocity or or it's giving you power. Like, um, and power is four times velocity. But like in terms of like coming out with a with an actual, you know, equation that can tell you precisely like this is where you are now. This is where you were. Like that to me, like again, is is something that. I know that's kind of where you're at with your thought process with this thing with Kaiser. Like, just the question, though, that I have for you is just trying to conceptualize this into my mind. So, Pat, so like, what would this look like? Like, as in, like, I walk into a facility that has this capability. Like, is, yeah. it, is it all just is it all air air resistance, or will this eventually be able to go on to, you know, like free weights, like trap bars and squats and bench? Yeah. Bars? So that's sort of uh, the exciting part of it is it should be able to move into the realm of whatever kind of trap bar, barbell, dumbbells, kettlebells, if you're able to put some kind of a tracker on that thing that tells the, tells the system what is the load on this particular implement. Uh, if, if you have a tracker on it, and there's gym aware is an example of a tracker, um, you know, our thing should be able to interface with anything like that now this would be in the future. It wouldn't be the first version of it, but it would, um, you know, it would ultimately like what we envision as the first version of this. Just, you know, I'll give you the first version. I'll give you the end version. That's that's a good way to think about it. The first version of it is going to be with Kaiser equipment, and we're going to have a scoreboard in the gym. And uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll have ten people that can be on the scoreboard at, at a at, in the beginning at, at a point in time. You're going through your workout. Uh, you're going from station to station, or you're doing repeat sets on the same station. The scoreboard is going to be quantifying the output of your set, and it's going to display that up the up on the score on, up on the screen for you. Mm. And as you do set after set after set, your score is going to continue to increase 
and at the end of your workout, you'll have your final total workout score for power output. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the in the future, it could it theoretically be any device that's capable of of telling uh, something about the the load, the range of motion, and the velocity of the implement that you just moved, and it would do the same thing. Now, in another gym, like let's say it's a commercial gym, it doesn't need to necessarily interface with a visible scoreboard on a wall if people don't want to participate in something like that. Instead, it can talk directly to your, tele to your, to your cell phone, uh, and it would have an app associated with it, and you would be able to track your own resistance training workouts going forward into the future. Now, it just depends, like you could you know, the, the device itself would have uh, a scoreboard potential. Like let's say you're a strength and conditioning coach and you want your athletes to have a competitive element in the weight room. They're all doing the same basic workout, but you want to make it a little bit more competitive. You can have this scoreboard in there and they see it right in front of them so that they can see that, that Jimmy is working a lot harder than Ted. Um, and, and that should motivate them to work harder. If you want to teach a group fitness class and you want to do the same thing, you can, do, you can have the scoreboard element involved. If you are, you know, Equinox or somebody like that, LA Fitness or whatever the hell it is, and you want to display, if, if you want to show that you have this added benefit for your members as opposed to uh, the other chains that exist, you could say, Hey, you know, one of the things that we offer is our members have access to this particular service so that your resistance training sessions, whatever the hell it is that you want to do, are all scored. And uh, here's this app that you can download onto your phone uh, and, and you can see that you're able to track your workouts over time as being a member of this gym. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's literally just like our service will probably be operating in the background and have different, uh, ways that people can use it, but it's ultimately just a service that is able to score resistance training workouts the same way that like people have historically scored like their, their runs, you know, Hey, I ran, uh, you know, five kilometers today. And there was a total elevation gain and loss of, you know, 1,200 meters across the, the run. Mm, um, very good. You know, so I, I think it's just very useful and very simple from that perspective. Now, we also do have the potential of, of inside of an app or something like that being like, hey, you produce this much power on this exercise, you know, and you compare that to these other exercises. And you can identify like, oh, this exercise right here is your weak link. This is the one that, because look, like you can make these things as complex or as uncomplex as you want over time. Uh, you know, you could have standards ultimately that, that come into being like compared to the other 100% uh, of the population that has been measured for trap bar deadlift. You are currently in the 12th percentile for women uh, age 35. This is not good. This is associated with all kinds of problems. Mm. Uh, you, you better do better at this or you're higher at risk for osteoporosis. Like, I just think that this has the potential to interface with things like insurance companies down the road to be able to see whether or not people are at higher risk for 
uh, all kinds of health-related problems. It's just easy data that actually makes a lot of sense regardless of the population that you're working with. Uh, if I'm working with rugby players and I have all of this data on their GPS and I know how many kilometers they've run at different velocity zones, like has anybody bothered to really track uh, you know, their total weight room output in different loading zones. You know, it's like, hey, we know that like sprinting, uh, like meters that have been accumulated in a sprint velocity zone have a different impact on the system compared to meters that have been accumulated at a slow jog. Same thing with the weight room, like total, uh, you know, total volume that has been accumulated with reps that are at 3,000 watts per rep have a different impact on the system than reps that have been accumulated with 700 watts per rep. Mm. You know, like you can accumulate this many reps and this much total wattage with, with reps that are 700 to 900 watts per rep. Yeah. And you can accumulate this many total uh, watts with reps that are, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 watts per rep. And, and look, like, I just think, like, overall, I think that the sports science world has done a pretty good job of, you know, identifying that data is important. But I think that the data that we're bringing in is either A, uh, noise in the background, or B, not specific enough uh, to be able to actually give you clear, very clear information that is going to enable you to be a better decision making maker on on uh, how much output and total work that you really want your people to do. So it's it's like uh, you know number one like like the same thing with writing. I want to use this system for myself. <laughs> like this to me is the thing that I'm building for myself so that I can make my training move as optimally as I possibly can into the future for the rest of my life. Like I want to depend on this thing because it should be a better decision-making engine compared to my own brain and my own intuition. And B, I bet you if it works for me because I'm obsessive and insane, uh, it's probably going to be a better tool for anyone else that wants to lift weights in terms of being able to regulate their own volume and have a better understanding of the way in which resistance training actually impacts their organism from a, cause I'll tell you like my, like clients drive me out of my mind where they're like, <laughs> Hey, I just started, I just started working out with you twice a week. I'm out of shape. I move like shit. This is not what they're saying audibly, but it's what I'm perceiving from them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, in my own mind, the next good idea is, I should obviously start working out five times a week on my own outside of working with you. Uh, I should do random shit like a boxing class and I should, you know, run and I should swim. And, and in my mind, I'm like, please, God, don't do that because you're going to be hurt in three weeks and, and or you're going to be psychologically burnt out because you're increasing your, the volume of your output by 8 million percent. Uh, you know, like your acute to chronic workload is now so unbelievably poorly partitioned that there's a 0% chance that I'm going to have you as a client for four months from now. And my income would be a lot better 
if you continued to be my client for the next four years as opposed to the next two weeks. And they just don't understand it. They can't conceptualize it very well versus for me, like I know if I literally, if I add two sets of, of, of one exercise to my program in the wrong sequence, I am going to be buried four weeks from now. And I know exactly why, because I didn't dole out an incremental increase in volume appropriately in the right level of like how hard it should be as an increase. Uh, you know, so I think that in, it's the same thing when I, when I'm trying to coach uh, most people on how to have the right intent in lifting weights, they don't figure out how to move a barbell with, with the appropriate velocity until they see the quantitative information staring them right back in the eyes. And as soon as they get a score on each rep, it changes everything. They start to move the implement with much more intent and velocity. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, I'm much more fatigued as a result of that. And it's like, yes, because your output was dramatically different. And, and same thing with, in terms of being able to give people a composite score of their actual total work, um, where they're like, oh, and now I understand why my right knee hurts. It's not some magical thing that, um, that I used to think it was. It's the fact that I, I just increased the, number, the frequency of exercise by you know, uh, like a 20,000-fold increase over what it was two weeks ago. You know, because I went from couch potato to thinking that it was a good idea to do everything all at once. Um, because these are the problems that I see and face on a daily basis. And, and quite honestly, I just hate seeing the same problems come at me over and over without a solution. Mm. And it's like, what is the damn solution? And it's like, I need to just smack people straight in the face with data because they'll at least understand that because I've learned very clearly that they don't understand what I'm trying to say verbally. And I, I just, I'm not going to continue to try to, you know, fight fires with uh, pouring salt and pepper on them. Like, let me find a different tool. It's uh, you, you actually kind of answered the question I was going to ask was like, uh, did, did, all, did this whole thought process come about because you were just getting so fed up trying to have to explain yourself to your clients? Because you, you were telling me before about like, you know, clients going, why don't they look like that? And you were just like, Oh, if we really went down this rabbit hole, I'd have to give you a big explanation. But just hold on, before I let you talk there, because this is driving me fucking nuts. So power is the product of force by distance over time. That's what I meant to say earlier on, because work is the product of force times distance. And in the strength condition world, usually when we talk about power, we say it's force times velocity. But in physics, power is force multiplied by distance divided by time. So that was just doing my head in. Come here, though. Yeah, it's I, me a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like, what, do you know when you, you, you're like, it just, it, you know it in your head, but it, it's like when, like, you meet your friend Brian and you, you, you say Peter, but in your head, you're like, it's Brian. Yeah. Do you know that kind of way? And you're like, why did I call him Peter? I don't know. I just came out like that. <laughs> but, uh, um, I don't even have a friend called Peter. But, uh, I don't know why that was in my head. But, uh, the other thing I was going to say was, it's funny you talk about this too, Pat, because, Here's the situation I've seen is that you, you get these clients that would come. Actually, this, this is what I saw a trend when I was coaching a lot more, say about four or five years ago in certain gyms, was that I've seen these coaches, right? And like they took like these Poliquin seminars 
and I'm not I'm not picking on Poliquin now, but just like Poliquin or, you know, these seminars where they talk about, you know, German body comp and it's all about high resistance, you know, training. Do do your, you know, don't bother doing any aerobic training or running or do, don't do any of these like circuit classes. You know, people should just lift weights and do like yeah. intervals if they want to get in shape, right? But the thing about like the Poliquin lads was, and again, I'm not picking on Poliquin, I'm just using these as an example. But the thing about like the guys at these Poliquin seminars is that they're all fucking jacked. And, yes. and 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 they and, and and they could create like homostatic damage when they lifted weights. Do you know what I mean? And they loved yeah. the weights, and they were strong as fuck. So like when they did like a strength training session, particularly if it was like, you know, six, twelve, twenty-five, or German body comp, they were fucked. Like they got a serious stimulus from that from that training session. Like they they actually you know that would lead to a body composition change over time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, given if they kept the stimulus of the training up and appropriate rest and nutrition and maybe some drugs too but you know you get what I mean but then these coaches would bring this type of training back to like Nancy who's 40 who's never lifted as weak as a kitten and can't move and like Nancy be there doing like dumbbell incline press with two kilos and she'd be coming yeah. she'd be coming back six weeks later and she's fatter do you know what I mean and, yeah. like, oh, and, yeah. and like what, and it was so obvious when I heard this but then like James Fitzgerald like talked about like Greg Glassman with CrossFit and Glassman was just like listen all you do when you exercise is a form of work like that's all it is it's forced by distance and then if you do it in a certain time period it's power output then it's forced on distance over time so he's just like when you exercise no matter what mode it is it's just some form of work you're doing with some specific mode of exercise so like lift deadlifts are a form of work riding a bike is a form of work they're just different ways of accumulating work so what happens is then Nancy goes back to these guys who say no no all you should do is strength training but she's not strong enough to listen to any homeostatic damage so Nancy goes but like I never sweat and I don't feel like I've done anything. So then she goes off and does spin classes and circuit classes with ropes where she's actually now covering some work. Like she's actually going through distance and velocity and now she's starting to sweat and she feels like she's actually achieving something. And actually she does start to drop a bit of weight. And then these coaches are like, I don't get it. Like, like, you know, when, 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 I, when we do this strength training, like we get in great shape and it's just like, yeah, because like, you're actually doing work when you lift weights because you can actually stimulate yourself. Like you've got the neural drive to actually, and some uh, muscle to actually create damage and do work when you lift weights, but she can't, she's not there yet. So then like, that's why like that, if you don't explain that to them or if you don't have some sort of progressive model in your head to get them there or understand that like they, they may need to, you may need to like sacrifice some strength training initially to get buy-in and like do some more sort of quote unquote more like, aerobic stuff or on a machine stuff because they can then elicit some force and actually go through some work go through some you know force by distance over time like to actually expend some energy and calories do you get what i mean like so like that's i've seen that so many times like it's just like it's, mm-hmm. it's like a perpetual cycle because then the clients come back oh yeah but i don't sweat like that's why i like spin it's like yeah, because in spin they actually did some work even though you know anyway that, that's no, why i that, that's I could why could not agree more i've yeah. i've I've given similar talks to, uh, to, to new trainers that come to the city that are like athletic guys. And I'm like, you got to understand what you're dealing with here. Like if, if you like that, which works for you is going to be a bad choice for a lot of the clients that you're going to mm-hmm. deal with here. They do not have the horsepower to be able to, to have benefit from that, which is going to be effective for you. And, and it's, you know, I've come up with some of these analogies like, uh, you know, like strength athletes are like drag cars and general population clients are like Toyota Corollas. You know, it's, it's like if I run a drag car a quarter of the mile 
in a straight line. It's going to go 300 miles an hour, and it's, it, I'm going to have to put it in the garage and put it back together again after, the, after this one run. Yeah. You know, it's like, and that can happen with, like, an a, a, you know, elite international-level weightlifter. You know, they, if they PR on an exercise that took them 2.2 seconds overall to be able to execute, they, they might be jacked up from that for a long time. I'm going to have to put them in the shop and fix them back up. You know, if I were to do the same thing with a, 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 a Toyota Corolla driving at a quarter of a mile, you know, it's probably, I don't even know how long it's going to take it to, to do this, yeah. uh, 20 seconds or something like that versus 3.9 seconds. But it's, uh, it, it's, there's no way that there's going to be anything wrong with it. It could probably just do it over and over and over and over and over again. And maybe if I do it like a hundred times, it's going to have a problem, but it's, it's just not, it's not built to be able to, it's built for like just efficiency and long duration. It's not built for power output. It, it, it hasn't gone through the right adaptations. Like, you know, if, if, uh, if organisms and cars somehow found this middle ground, the Toyota Corolla would have training adaptations and and maybe it could look a little bit more like a drag car, but it'd probably just be a Toyota Corolla version of a drag car. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's always just like you. I, I swear, like some people are either so quote unquote evidence based, or they're so like they're they're just they miss that which is staring them in the face right in front of them yeah. that is observable and obvious to even uneducated people that are from different fields it's like get out of your own way and literally just look at what's in front of you like the the the, the other the other aspect too so i just spoke about like because i i seen you write about this before on facebook and i was just like yep i've seen this too like so i just touched on there where you know you're trying to apply resistance training to someone who's too weak to get a benefit from it initially the other the other side of this too you see it too is the corrective exercise people you get, oh, that, God, yeah. you get that fat person in like, you're like listen <laughs> that person just needs to get on a leg press and just fucking create again do some work yep. and like they're there trying to correct like ankle mobility and just like like this what you've this person for 45 minutes to an hour like again this person needs to go through some work and however they accumulate that work, you're just going to have to make an individual to them because that's going to be the lowest hanging fruit. Cause if you can get that obese person then to drop that initial 25, 30, 40, 50 pounds, well then that opens up so much more windows of opportunity to get more variation into their training. Initially what maybe you had in, in mind for the person you might be able to do now, but it's just like you get these people and it's just like trying to, you know, cart way before a horse. I know you could rant on that all day as well. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, uh, for me with rethinking the big patterns, principles of progressions, I tried to find the, the middle ground, not the middle ground, just the, the right damn answer for what do you do in these situations? Because the corrective exercise nonsense has driven me so crazy, uh, of people that are doing like, uh, complex, bizarre activities that will not yield any kind of actual physiological adaptation. Uh, you know, like if I'm going to be doing, if I identify a trainable movement pattern that is a knee dominant activity, you know, what is the right starting place? Like if you follow the algorithm of the 10 principles of progression 
in reaching the big patterns to, you come to the conclusion that it basically tells you that a heel elevated goblet squat with tempo is the appropriate first exercise under the knee dominant category for, for people who have very low uh, exercise IQ. Like this is their first exposure to squatting of any kind. Mm. This is the kind of squat you do with this person. There's a band around their knees. There is a elevation under their heels and you put their arms in the position that would be either a zercher squat or a goblet squat. That is the activity. And if I put them there, I increase the likelihood that they will squat properly. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is like, I think you'll appreciate the thought process is I'm looking for the adapt adaptive changes associated with doing this activity that are desirable. Mm. And I'm looking to reduce the side effects that occur with exercise that are undesirable. And side effects of exercise that are undesirable are things like the inflammation response that hurts joints um, and, you know, just other stuff that kind of rides along with that. You know, it's like, wouldn't it be nice if I could, you know, have all of the benefits with the least amount of side effects? That's what we're trying to do. And it's, it's like, that's what we do with medicine and drugs. You know, we, we give the person the right class of drug for the outcome we're looking for. And we test these drugs over time and try to refine them and make them smarter so that we have less side effects while getting the outcome we're looking for. It's the same damn thing when it comes to exercise, in my opinion. It's just, do we have a rule book that actually accomplishes that? And that's what I tried to do. So it's like, I don't care if you're this big fat bastard on day one or like a 14 year old athlete, both of you are going to get the same activity as your first initiation to knee dominant exercises. Um, and both of you should actually be able to do this appropriately so long as I gave you the right load, but I'm going to minimize the actual load by creating a tempo response. And by moving you slower, you're probably going to be able to be to increase your range of motion with confident range of motion, be in the right positions and feel the right tissues working. Uh, because the activity itself is derived from concepts that are linked with biomechanics outcomes that are observable over and over riding together in tandem man it's been a great conversation but uh we must wrap up here soon enough um i was going to ask you one other thing just uh, this is probably something we can talk about when we uh speak next what I will do is, I know you sent me over a preview of, of the book that you're in the middle of writing, which is it's going to be an absolute monster. Like, how how big, this isn't the question I was going to ask, but just... It's oh, it's fun. pretty big, Robbie. Oh, no, I know it's big. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I know it's big, and I know that's big too. Come here. Uh, but how, how big do you anticipate the book to be? Because the little draft you sent over to me, because when you sent the draft over to me initially, when you sent the draft over initially, like, I, I opened it up, uh, and I it didn't show it like in in hotmail or in my email it didn't show many pages there was so i didn't realize it then when i downloaded it and opened it up i was like holy shit this is already a few hundred pages um yeah like do you think it's is it going to be just one big book or are you going to split it into a volume one volume two or you don't know yet it's gonna be one big one big book right. you know i would never do i would never do that to people i don't think yeah um you know right now it's a hundred and ten thousand words which uh you know, it's, 
Um, on my on my computer, it's it's single spaced. Uh, it's two hundred and twelve pages it's right dense. now. Yeah, it's dense. So, and I'm probably two thirds of the way through it. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's going to be a monster. Like it's it's going to be a a long, extensive book. Um, but it's it's hopefully going to be something like I don't I'm I, you know, as I write this thing. I only have one thought process, which is what am I writing right now? What exactly am I talking about right now? Can I just say everything that I know and think about this right now? Um, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm typically been someone that we talked about this earlier where, Oh, I just want to get this thing done and I want to get it out there, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying to prevent myself from going into that thought process. So mm -hmm. It's just when I write, I'm only just participating with this topic that I'm currently on. And I'm going to try to make everything that I know about this topic come together in an organized, coherent way. And so it'll be done whenever, whenever it's done. Um, you're being present, Pat. You're, in the pro you're being present I, with the process. I'm doing my best to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it's, it's this thing and I'll send you over uh you know a more updated version of where I'm at now because there's there's you know clearly since I sent the last one over to you there's been a lot more that's gone into this one now yeah I think I think the one I have is 172 pages so you said it's 212 up to now so there's obviously been a, yeah. additional information put up to it but yeah, yeah. man it's going to be it's going to be as I like to say an absolute whopper of a project but I uh, I'm really looking forward to it Something I did want to ask, um, I think it's something we, we can discuss on the next uh, next time we get together, is about, I don't know why this is on top of my head, but I asked Mike Robson about this and I spoke to John Brady about it, but just in terms, just because you're somebody who is on the coaching floor day to day and you have colleagues and you're married and, and you have clients and whatnot, have you ever solicited feedback? Like, so have you ever gone around to your colleagues and like say, give me feedback where I can improve on as a person? whether it's written or, or like face-to-face. -face. And the reason why I come up with that is I'm listening to your man, Dan Harris's podcast lately, and he talked about this 360 review he done. So it's where you hire these people and like they interview like your family and your friends and your colleagues. And it's basically just like a review on you as an individual, like about soliciting feedback. Cause John Berardi speaks about it too. And Berardi actually gets like his wife and his kids giving feedback as a dad and a husband and all like, I just, it just made me kind of intrigued again, if we're talking about like mastering self mastering, I suppose if we're trying to master anything, we need to master ourselves, be able to master what we're trying to master. That was a lot of masters I said there, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I suppose self mastery is what we're really after. And we're just using different mediums and means to attain that. But is that anything you've ever thought about yourself? Like in, in terms of, actively going after feedback like here listen tell me where i can improve to be a more of a savage i've never i've never done it uh the thought of doing it frightens me yeah i um, do you know what funny i i felt that because it frightens me too like um you know i uh I, I don't ask for feedback on the courses that i teach because well number one i i i'm teaching the best thing i possibly can yeah, uh, I can usually read an audience pretty well. Um, I don't think I'll ever do that. It sounds it sounds like something that would be. Um, I don't know if you'd get a straight answer from people. Yeah, well, you know, it, it can be anonymous though in terms of written feedback, you know, so you wouldn't know who yeah. it came from. So maybe you know, 
I've seen feedback from seminars that I've taught that have been outside of my own thing. And the feedback has never been of value. Um, It's always weird stuff. That's, that's like, well, you missed the point. Like (laughs) that's your feedback. Are you kidding me? I've, I've never seen a single thing of value from written down feedback uh, on that front. The coffee, and, the coffee ran out. Oh my God. That's not the feedback we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it's always something like that. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, and, and then uh, like it, it, all I've ever found it to be has been a very annoying process that it's just left me more frustrated uh, after the fact. And, and it's like, I'm not going to change any of the things that I got from the feedback that I've received thus far. And this feedback has made me hate this person. Like this person that I don't know that I now associate with everyone that was there uh, is now on my shit list. And, um, and so it's, it's, uh, I don't know. That's, there's something about that that makes me very uncomfortable. And, and I don't think I would ever do that. Um, No, I'm just wondering, like, again, like, I mean, I suppose it's, this kind of goes back to what I stated earlier on, that you can take all these sort of principles from, you know, Buddhism and Eastern traditions and, you know, spiritual leaders who talk about, you know, compassion and empathy and discernment and understanding and being unconditional. And again, at a cognitive level, you're like, I understand that. But then like, putting it into practice is so much harder isn't it you know it's like right i understand like this is a criticism and i can see this as an attack or i can see it as an opportunity to grow as a person but there's always still now i'm speaking purely for myself for me anyway there will always be that initial sort of knee-jerk reaction of fucking son of a bitch you know like 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 a fuck you but in fairness I, i i do personally feel that i am pretty good at after that initial feeling comes letting it yes. go and then and then go and listen the person who gave me that feedback they're at a certain part, part place in their life right now who knows what's happened so again john brady kind of gave a good analogy he said he's a seminar he's like you know you, like I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but like he was basically saying like you get all great feedback and there's this one person who's bad feedback and that's the only thing you can think about because as a species we kind of have that negativity bias they say from evolution mm-hmm. from a from a survival standpoint but his whole thing was like you don't understand like where that person was that day like you know what's going on in their lives or what what has led them to be that person that moment i mean are they just naturally a pessimistic person are they hard to please or like did someone die the day before did they have an argument that morning did they sleep that night was their blood sugar off in that moment it was just something you know that led them to give that 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 feedback like you know and, and like so you, you again like you could take it so personally and it kind of goes back then to the four agreements with don miguel ruiz where like one of the agreements is don't take anything personally because you you make everything about you like the thing mm-hmm. in that book is like uh i, I love one of the lines in the book and again i'm paraphrasing but he's like taking something personally is like one of the highest forms of selfishness because you think everything is about you whereas most most often when someone is projecting a like a a negative criticism or an attack on you it's really an attack on themselves and you just happen to be in that moment with them and you were just uh you were just the subject that they projected it out onto and oftentimes when you get attacked from someone it's usually an embassy or, or, or a jealous a, a jealousy thing if it's someone you know well mm. because usually you're attaining or doing something and they wish they had the courage to do it too and they try to sacrifice it you often see that you probably see you now because you're coaching a lot more than me but you know when you get a client and like they're making great strides 
but then their relationships are suffering because their partner's like fuck my girlfriend my boyfriend they're changing their lives around they're working out with this guy pat and like their like their bodies change and they're happier and like they they can't get to that place yet and they start to self-sacrifice and like do you ever know you hear the stories like you probably know too like when you had to cut weight or if you were doing something you'd be around mates and you get that mate be like oh eating your rabbit food oh going to the gym so disciplined mm-hmm. you know they do that like uh double bluff psychology with you you know what i mean where they pretend that like they're better than you because like they don't take life so seriously man and you take it too seriously because you're so disciplined but in the back of their mind they're like oh my god i'm so envious of robbie and pat because they have to discipline through that and look after themselves you know kind of way i kind of i kind of went off there but just in terms of getting negative feedback and not being scared of it really kind of seen it more again as a growth opportunity and again i say that as a person yeah. whose first initial reaction will be fuck you but then like you know it's kind of like no, no hold on. same way yeah, like hold on, there, there's there's a reason for this, and I can I can choose how. You, again, it's like you can choose how you want to respond. That you can take it as an opportunity to grow as a person, and and you know use use it as a as a as a motivating factor and as a powerful thing. Like I remember, like Pat, when I got fired as a teacher in a college few, two years ago. Like in driving home, and the first thing I said was like, "What what can you learn from this right now?" Like, and I like to think I've grown from it too, you know. And then, and I and I can remember telling myself at the time, was like, "Well, right now this sucks, but I know that." that like I'll grow from this and I'll be better from it. And like looking back on it now, I was like, James, I'm so happy. I actually do not have that job anymore. Cause I was not happy. Like, you know, and like mm. other opportunities have opened up and I'm far happier now. And again, not saying the happiness again, going back to our conversation, maybe it's more about meaning, but I'm definitely more content than I was at that time. But at the time I was like, fuck, how am I going to pay bills? <laughs> but like, you know, it's oh, just yeah. kind of like, you know, how can I grow from this? But it was just a question I was interested in, in asking from you. Cause Robertson, Mike Robertson was saying that it's something that he had, he was just literally doing that day. He was going to sit down with Bill and get feedback as a business partner. But I'm really more, just for the answer you gave there, I'm really not some more talking about getting feedback at your seminars. Like even like with your wife or your mates, like, you know, yeah. would you ever sit down and say, listen, you know, this is obviously going to be hard for you to tell me or and for me to probably take, but I know that in the long run, it's probably going to make our relationship better. Like, where do you think I could serve you better? Or where can I be better as a person? And do you know what, too? Oftentimes we kind of, and again, I'm speaking here for myself, I kind of know where I need to improve. It's just, again, yeah. it's the known and the doing, isn't it? Like, I know, yeah. like, if I was to ask my parents, like, you know, you could come down and see us more and spend more time with us and, you know, like, give us more of your time. And it's like, yeah, I fucking know that. And like, yeah, like, and like, I was about to say, I should see the, see the word I'm using there. Should it's like it when that should becomes I want. That's when you'll start doing it, you know. So it's just, it's we all have our shit and demons we're dealing with. But it was just something I was interested in getting your thoughts on. Well, you know, the more that I think about it, the more I'm actually realizing how many avenues in my life I have currently that give me this kind of feedback. Mm. Like, you know, number one, like, uh, you know, I I see a therapist on a weekly basis. Oh wow. Um, you know, so. And, and she, she's someone that I'll probably continue to work with because, you know, she can see through my bullshit faster than probably anybody I've ever met. And she's able to call me on it, identify what I'm doing and give me very quick feedback, um, on that regard. Uh, and, and so it's like, and it's always something that like is incredibly painful for me to hear initially. And I become very defensive. I'm, I'm a very, def- like any, like all, any kind of uh, criticism that I receive, I always take extremely personally. Mm. It's inc- incredibly painful for me to hear, but like what you described, if, 
if I'm given time to just get over the initial pain of it, I'm able to think about it. And I, I almost always make the change that's needed to be made to improve in that area. And I've learned to recognize that when I get that really painful information, that it's actually a gold mine every single time. It's the best case situation. It's just that it, it doesn't make it hurt any less in the, in the moment where I'm given that kind of criticism. Um, I also have people that I work with that, you know, we, we are constantly busting each other's balls. Yeah, like yeah. I would say hype gym is the ball busting capital of the, of the country in the U S uh, at the very least. Um, and, and like, we're pretty like, you know, like people just call you on your stuff very quickly and, and you have to learn like, I, I mean, I enjoy it in that process because it's done. People are witty and people are funny. And, uh, but sometimes you're like, Oh God, that person nailed me. Like I, I really, and, but I think that we've, we've been very good for each other on that front. You know, um, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot about myself from, from just like, you know, the, the ball busting that takes place in that place on a daily basis. Um, yeah, it's, it's how it's, 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 it's how, it's how guys show love. It is. Yeah. And then of course there's the internet, which is a nonstop place of that. And, um, and so like on a fairly regular basis, I'll have people that, that will chime in with, with negativity on, on pretty much anything that I put out there. So it's, uh, it's, there's not a shortage for me in terms of criticism that exists. Um, and, and I do try, I, I feel like I do learn from it. I, you know, I, I have learned that um, you have to seek out knowledge from people that are saying the exact opposite of what you're saying. And, and at first, you're going to like hate their message and you're going to hate that person. But you actually have to really like uh, embrace that person mm. and figure out what it is that they're saying. Because yeah. you're going to learn so much, so much more. They're a teacher. By, yeah, one million percent. Uh, so I, it's a great topic and, and I think that, uh, you know, like as much as I don't wish more of it upon myself, I wish more of it upon myself. Yeah. Joe, I was listening to a podcast with Jordan Harbinger and he said something and I thought, you know, uh, I, I, it's so funny cause I'm reading so much about like rationality versus feeling. And I'm always like, you know, when someone when someone's like agreeing with people or saying, yeah, absolutely. Or yeah, that's so true. I'm like, that's really all our feeling brain saying that, you know, like truth is so subjective. But when, when I, when I heard Jordan Harbinger say this, I was like, you know, I do agree with what he's saying right here. And it was this concept of like, he was like, I would rather someone didn't like me, but they fully trusted me. So what he meant by that was like, he, he had no problem giving you feedback that he knew would hurt your feelings, but he knew in the long run it would make you a better person. So he was kind of saying like, you know, I'd rather someone didn't like me, but they knew that I can trust that guy because he's honest. Mm. So it just, it just made me think to, you know, cause uh, it's funny, like probably the, the people who care about us most are the people who, who are honest. Cause like, like my, my mother now, she, she's like, you know, she's had like, sometimes she's had to like tell me things, you know, like, you know, like little bits of feedback here and there. And like, she's like, listen, I'm telling you this not to, you know, it's not to hurt your feelings, but it's just because I care about you, you know, kind of way. So like, 
they're they're the true people you want in your life like because i've had one or two yeah. they've had to say harsh things and i'm like i'd often say to them listen i'm sorry that like say the time i got fired from that that that, that college teaching job like like the guy who fired me was a very very good friend of mine like and uh like obviously at at, at the time like i got very upset like in, in the room like and i remember telling him later she's i'm sorry like you had to i put you in that position but at the same time i was like i, I was happy it was you because you were man enough to come in and be the one to let me know john kind of way like and you know give the feedback that needs to be given so yeah it's it's uh it's an interesting question it really is again i suppose it's it's about being able to disassociate from our ego and whatnot but again these things yeah. uh, we, we and you've just spoke about this now two or three times in this conversation it's so easy to recognize that like the knowing is so easy it's like i know but the doing like what oh. is that doing that stops us do you know like so like you, you're kind of in that process now writing writing this book like you know i mean I suppose the fact that you've had two books out there already, you've a bit of momentum behind it, but like there's some of your coaches out there or not even coaches, but people who like, they just procrastinate on things that they know they should do. Like they know it, but it's the doing. It's like that resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about in the war of art, you know, that, that, that gap between like, like the life that you do live and the life you should live. I love that. At the start of his, at the start of the book, that's how he opens up the book. He says, every human being is given two lives, the lives that they do live, and the lives they're meant to live. And he says the majority of people lives the life, live the life that they just live. He said, but they never live the life that they were meant to live because they, they don't overcome resistance. And he, the whole book is about like, he just talks about like resistance is over your shoulder all the time. It's always there. Like you're worthless. You're not going to do it. Like, and he talks about resistance as a writer is in like, you know, you just, you don't sit down at the laptop that day and write. And he's like, but the days you do do it and struggle with it, he's like, fuck you resistance. I overcame you in that kind of way. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, they're just things that have been on my mind lately. You know, these, I suppose, cause again, I read Manson's book and I've been thinking more again about, and actually I'd be dive, I, I started to read, uh, thinking fast and slow by Kahneman, like mm. in system one and two, I, I got to say, right. I'm a hundred pages into that book. Right. And, Listen, and I've listened to a lecture of him, and no doubt he's an intelligent man, like very intelligent. Um, but so far now, and I'm only as a, a quarter of the way through the book, I really feel he could have written it a little bit better. Like it's yeah. a bit, it's a bit, hard, it's a bit overly dense in that, like <laughs> in that, like okay, you, you, I get your message here, but like you, you didn't have to go so so deep to like relay that you know what i mean yeah i mean he's an economist though yeah you know yeah. it's just he's not a not an author by trade it's like uh you know sometimes you get like brilliant scientists that uh that you know from an experimental standpoint and yeah. they're incredible but they they can't they can't write <laughs> like you know <laughs> But I say that as a fucking white Irish bachelor in his apartment who has never written a book or, or you know, has, <laughs> has, has anywhere near the credentials of this man. Here, here, here I have fucking cheek to criticize him. So again, I, I suppose a key thing that, and I want, I want listeners to notice, and I, and I feel you'd notice about me, but I'm definitely one of these person, uh, persons, is that even good English? But I, I'm definitely someone that if you are going to, if you are going to criticize, don't criticize unless you can offer a solution so like mm. have a solution like it, it that that is one thing that really does now and, and we spoke about you know not letting external factors con, you know control your response but that is that is what, something that i do get new jerk reactions and then then the 10 seconds comes where i can just let it go but it's like an issue like if you are going to criticize because again what, what what a lot of times because again people don't know they don't have a core value 
they don't know their meaning in life they don't know their place in the universe so to add some fulfillment what they do subconsciously is they complain oh it's the weather or it's politics or like i remember one time this woman was giving it with the healthcare system in ireland like and and i and i wasn't being i wasn't being like a a douchebag back to her you know i was actually like being very nice and saying you know what, what would you what would your solution be to it? like you know how, how would you go about it and then she was kind of a bit stumped by that and i was like do you know what the health care budget is for the Irish government? And she's like, no. I was like, do you know who the health minister is for Ireland? And she's like, no. And I was like, I was like, so <laughs> what are you complaining about? You're like, it's a topic you know nothing about. It's like me saying that we're never going to Mars. I know nothing about the, the, the science about getting to Mars. So I don't have a right to an opinion on it. So yeah. It's, right. It's, it's, it's funny. You just kind of reminded me that like, um, back when you were talking about that resistance, and uh and why people get stuck in doing these same things and the doing is so hard you know i'm reminded of the, these these graphs of like dynamical systems and you know you sort of see like this uphill line and then it then it stops and it collects in a well and then like <laughs> yeah. ab- above that well is is another uphill line and above that is another well yeah the attractor um, the attractors and fluctuators yeah and and it's like you need to be able to to overcome and have enough energy to move yourself up the ladder to the next well. Um, and, and like powering out of this well, and of course you can go in the opposite direction too with enough bad shit and you can go down the, the ladder and into the, the, the rung below that. But, um, you know, it, it takes so much power to push yourself out of a state yeah. and to, to move yourself uphill into a better state um it's an it's it's an it's inertia it's it's 100 percent inertia yeah and it's like it's it's a it's inertia for enough time like sustained inertia but i don't even know if it's inertia at a certain because you have to go uphill to get there it's 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 a climb it's a climb and then once you've you've fulfilled this climb and you've gotten to the next place now it's a bit of an inertia you know what I mean? Now it's like a, you're yeah. rocking back and forth in a bowl of, of perpetuating the same thing. And you, maybe you do it a little bit better for a little while and you do it a little bit worse, but you generally kind of you're like a marble in a bowl. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, hey, the only way to get this marble into the bowl that's like in the next shelf up, somebody has to lift it up there. And, uh, and, and that's the hard part. That is the doing. And, and that initial doing requires deliberate practice and effort and sustaining that. And I don't know, you don't ever know how long it's going to be because these are invisible ladders and invisible bowls and all this sort of stuff, uh, at least from our own perspective. But, it, you know, very few people, like we are an energy conservation animal to the highest degree. Very few yeah. of us are ever willing to put in the effort that is required to actually break the inertia and, uh, and, and elevate ourselves to another state. So, you know, I think, I think that's really the, the, the thing, because for me, it's sort of like, people are like, where do you find the time to, to do all these things? You know, it's like, you got seminars, you got day-to-day work, you're doing the book, you're doing, you know, the Kaiser stuff, you're doing blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know. It's just like what I do. Like right now I'm just in this bowl and, uh, and I just rock back and forth, but I go through these oscillating actions and, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't even feel like a thing for me. 
And, but like, uh, you know, there's always, I'm always looking to, to see if I can climb this ladder and, and, and accomplish the next thing that, that really will, will make me uncomfortable, you know? So what that is at this point, I don't know, because I'm kind of happy in the current bowl I'm rattling around in. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I can't remember the exact podcast it was, but I remember you were talking on a podcast once and you were kind of saying that like people often say to you like, but what do you do for fun, Pat? You're always like on, like, what do you do for fun? And you go fun. What, what do you mean? This is fun. You're not having fun. I'm always having fun. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it was just gas. Listen, uh, that's phenomenal. Um, I suppose just wrap it up real quick. Last time we spoke to your body composition goals, uh, anything changed or. Yeah. You know, I was originally doing those for a reason. And it's funny. That's come around a couple of times recently with people asking me about that. Um, you know, at, at a certain point, like I was planning on, you know, kind of some of the, the groups of guys that I'm friends with, we were going to do this, uh, this lifting competition. It was going to be, uh, you know, I think Ben was going to host it down in Costa Rica and it was supposed to be last July. And, you know, we, we kind of established like weight classes that people could compete in. And I was going to try to get down to a lower weight class, um, you know, purely to mess with a couple of people, you know, like it was purely to stick it to this guy, Tio from Texas that I'm friends with, uh, <laughs> because he had been like dominating this lighter weight class. And, and I'm like, man, I'm just going to lose a bunch of weight and compete against him and just thrash him just so he knows that he's not that good. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, what, what ended up happening is that Ben's wife got pregnant unexpectedly yeah, yeah. for them. And, and they ended up, uh, she ended up having the baby right around the time period that we were originally going to plan for that, that competition. So it was like, ah, there's just no way that we're going to be able to do this at that point in time. So then it was like, well, there's no real need for me to diet and lose all this weight because I don't have this opportunity to punk Tio. Uh, it's like, it's so funny. Like the only reason I was going to do this was purely just out of spite to get this one guy. Um, and and then like that was removed from the equation so it was like well i don't really care now uh so nothing has particularly changed from from that perspective uh on body composition you know you really fucked up a thought process i once had which was uh you know if you really are going to do something you should really do for yourself and then when we had the conversation about spite i was like but you know what some great things come out of spite you know, because I always, it always brings a smile to my face. It makes me laugh when I just, when I hear your voice saying, you know, I do things just purely out of spite. And I just, I could just see how your mind's working where it's like, fuck you, motherfucker. And then you, you just, you just do it. You just do it. And you're like, and it's just like a big fucking middle finger to the person who told you no. Like, because I've had this conversation with other people too. And even like with James Fitzgerald, like who obviously you know, a friend and a massive mentor of mine. And I've had this conversation. I was like, yeah, but I've had this conversation with Pat where like, you know, you know, some great things are made out of spite. Like you even look at like, uh, you know, like Steve Jobs, like, and you know, like certain drives there were out of spite or like some great political people who ran for office when people were like, you would win the election. Then they run and they're like, fuck you. 
you know, yep. like some great inventions and whatnot, you know, just like out of spite, like, you know, maybe Tesla with, with like Edison and there's competition. That's what kind of bit what competition is. So it's like, fuck, I want to do this before that guy gets there. You know, it's a bit of, mm-hmm. it's a bit of spite there. So some great things can come out of it. So it's a, uh, you know, it is funny too. Yeah, it is funny. It really is. Right. And if you met this guy, Tio, it would be even better because this guy loves to talk shit and he loves to compete. And you'd, you'd love him. I mean, there's no way that you wouldn't love this guy. He's ridiculous. I've never encountered anybody quite like him. Uh, but if you're going to be able to mess with somebody, this is the perfect person to do that to. So, and, and like, I'm telling you, like, I would have been able to accept being hungry. You know what I mean? Like, man, I really want this. But, man, fuck Tio. I'm not eating this ice cream sundae right now. Like, I need to get this guy. And that would have kept me disciplined for the long run because oh, every no. time I was going to do it, I would have, I would have had that in the, and not in the back of my mind, right in the front of my mind. <laughs> uh, what are you reading right now? Or are you just fully focusing on the research for the book? Um, I'm going through some of uh, Robert Greene's stuff. Uh, um, I've read Mastery, one of my favorite books. Yeah. You know, I've, I, uh, I actually, I went through his Laws of Human Nature, Art of Seduction, 48 Laws of Power, and I'm, I'm actually just going back through some of the stuff from Laws of Human Nature. What's um, that like, Pat? It's really good. I think it's actually, it's my favorite out of the ones that he's done. Really? Um, Art, Art of Seduction kind of goes into some like really long, drawn out stories of historical people that I'm like, uh, I stop paying attention halfway through sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, I think laws of human nature really, he says some powerful stuff in there. Um, and, and I find that when I, I find he, he really speaks to like the way that I, like my, my worldview and my, the way that my brain operates from like a, you know, I, I find him to be categorical from, from a thought process. I find him to be able to explain things in a fairly sequential, uh, orderly manner where uh, it's, it's just very helpful for me and, and it helps me with my interactions. And I just think he has good advice overall and like realistic advice, um, which is, is hard to come by. It's like, you know, I think some people are maybe too idealistic, but I feel like he actually like really speaks to the, to the gray areas of, of human nature mm. and, and is able to capture those things. Um, and then you can recognize them after the fact, after reading it. And, and so I'm, I'm able to apply some of the things that he says in terms of also being present with people and paying very close attention to people and um, to, to more than just what they're saying as well, like to their nonverbal and their, um, you know, their secondary language cues. He had a stroke there a little while ago, you know that? Oh, did he? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, because he was on Lou's House podcast and he was just coming off the his stroke, like, and uh, but he was saying like he puts himself under awful pressure when he's writing a book, like he really gets stressed out about it. Like it was funny too. I heard an interview. It was on London Real. It was it's about five. No, it's probably more five six because Master was out. Two thousand. I read that in two thousand fourteen. So it's probably out a little bit before that. So the interview was probably about five six years ago. But he spoke about how um, when he was writing Mastery his editors turned around and basically said, you've 10 weeks to get this book in. Like, and he takes like a year or something to write books. And he actually t- yeah. spoke about like, he goes, his initial knee jerk reaction was fuck you guys. This is bullshit. 
And he said for the first like literally day to two days after that, he was like so angry. And then like he goes, right, I have two decisions here. I can stay angry and pissed off and this won't happen. Or I can put the head down for 10 weeks and come out with something unreal. And he goes, I've already wasted two days. Let's get going. So, and then he came up with mastery. Like, and it's kind of like that Parkinson's law thing. You know, when you're kind of under a time restraint, you get more productive. Um, so it's kind of funny because Stu McMillan Altus, he says that kind of dries his, his process with training sometimes that like when he has an athlete in the weight room and like the athlete goes, how many sets should I do? And he goes, do as many as you can in 10 minutes. And he's like, your body will tell you how you feel like, and he's like, you know, it's, it's kind of nearly an auto regulation thing. You know, if you feel that you can get this amount done in that amount of time, going back to our power output talk earlier on. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh that's cool. Yeah. Robert green. Uh, I'm definitely going to dive back more into Robert green stuff. I, uh, Mark Manson too. I read the subtle art, not giving a fuck. And then I read everything is fucked. I actually read everything is fucked twice. I found it very, very good. And then oh. just dipping in and out of uh, Kahneman's book because I'm actually doing a ton of physiology right now. I, I read Make It Stick by Peter Brown and those two other artists. So I got that from Bill, obviously. So, oh. you know, about like how to learn and retain information. And since I read that book, my retention and memory is like, oh, it's, got, it's a thousandfold better path. So like how, oh. I study, how I study now, like I used to be, I used to be like, all right, I need this like four hour block in the afternoon to study. But, like, if you'd asked me at the end of that four-hour block, what did you learn there? Like, I'd be like, mm. Whereas now, like, my study is literally just, like, 90 minutes to maybe two hours because the intensity, the quality has gone up so much. So, basically, what I took from Make a Stick was if you want to really learn something, you have to take a test. Mm-hmm. You got to test yourself. So, like, when you read something – so, this is what I've been doing lately is, like, I read, I read something – I close my eyes and then I recite like, what did I just learn there? Did I actually take it in? And you know what? When you do it for the first time, it's so scary because your brain's like, I don't remember. I don't remember anything. You know, when you close your eyes, it's like, just relax, just breathe, recall what you did. And so what I do is I read it. I verbally test myself, but here's the key thing. This has been the game changer. The next day, right? I sit down at my desk, blank piece of paper and a pen, and I take a summary test. What did I learn yesterday? And then when I read a whole chapter in textbook, it's, it's a test in that day. It's like, you know, usually it's Saturday and I do my summary test of the whole chapter. And I've gone through the first nine chapters now of, uh, um, Torah and Derrickson's anatomy physiology, 12th edition, it's 10 years old, it's a little bit old, but the first nine chapters now I've got pretty dialed in. So like the first was just anatomy physiology intro. Then it's the chemical level of the body. So, you know, all about like the atomic structures and chemical reactions. Then it's the cells then it's the tissues, then it's uh, the integumentary system, then it's bone tissue, uh, axle, appendicular, joints. So they're the first nine chapters, and I'm pretty solid on them right now. The only answer, or the, sorry, not the answer, the only question I have now is how often do I have to re-tap in to those tests and to, to, to the information there in my mind to make sure they're still there. So like basically the question is how long do those knowledge residuals last? So very, very similar to the, yeah. how long does a, does a physical resi- residual last like strength or aerobic capacity or anaerobic capacity or yeah. lactic qualities? How long does a memory residual last? Like how often do I have to go back and top it up till it's like, till the, till those neurons in my brain are fairly well down. That's just kind of, cause I've only started using this strategy of study since like the midsummer, like, but it's really made a profound difference. Yeah, it's amazing that you say that. You know, I mean, I, I learned so much teaching and, 
I, I could not believe how much I learned the first time I had to make an exam for a class. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I actually adopted this policy when I was at Brooklyn College of uh, at the beginning of every single class, uh, the students would take a quiz on the information that they were supposed to have read for that day. Mm. Like it wasn't on what we covered last time. It's on what we're going to cover this time. And, uh, and then I would just teach the class from the quiz. Um, and, you know, I, I, it made everything so much, like the class was more enjoyable for the students, I think, because they were more engaged because I would, you know, they would take the quiz, I would collect the quiz and I would go like the class is the quiz, you know, and they're more like, Oh, I didn't get that one. Why didn't I get that one? And they're paying attention to the things that they missed. Uh, and, and their performance overall as a group just skyrocketed compared to previous classes as soon as I began that policy of uh, every day's a quiz. And, and also, I remember uh, I would always, every time I gave a midterm and a final, you know, you're just sitting there and it's like, what, what the hell am I going to do for this hour and a half that they're taking this? And I would just take the exam with them. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, and, and then, um, I, I, you know, I, I think I remember almost everything and I haven't taught those classes in five, six years, six years now, something like That's that. That's so funny. You mentioned that because one of the principles in the book that they talk about is generation. And they use that word to describe that before you even try and study a topic, just go to the questions and see if you can answer already from the get go. Yeah. And, yep. and see if you can generate an answer with like what would make common sense to you already, just given what you already kind of know superficially of this topic. And, uh, and a huge thing to take away. And it's so funny after our conversation, I'm getting feedback and taking things as, as a negative, like their whole thing, one of the, one of the great sort of lines in the book. And again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember word for word, but their whole thing is you are far in, in terms of knowledge uh, accumulation or accruing knowledge. They're like, you are far better off to take a test um, and or, or take a test or take a question in a test and be completely 100% wrong than not to take mm -hmm. it or not, not to take it at all like so their whole thing is that people are just afraid of tests because they're afraid to be wrong and they're like no no like it's it's like gang, you're either right or you learn it, that's it you're you know what either, I'm right I either know this or if I don't know I'm gonna learn something new you know what I'm gonna do based on this conversation like uh I mean, the, you know, the, the power hours that I teach at Hype Gym on, on Wednesdays, um, I think what <laughs> I'm going to do is I'm going to print out some of my old midterms and finals from the classes that I taught yeah. and, uh, and literally just read the, like ask the questions and see if who knows the answers and use those to be able to actually teach some of the upcoming ones. I'm right in the middle of, uh, of program design 101. Uh, in those things, but it would be very interesting to go back into, you know, exercise physiology and, and give the audience, I'm sure they'll love it. Uh, but you know, I, I'm curious, like that's, it, it works so damn well. Uh, I wonder if I still have some of the, the questions and answers that I had when I was studying for my doctoral qualifying exams. Um, because those were fascinating. Like I, like what you're talking about, like I had to take these, these doctoral qualifying exams in the, in the PhD program I was in and you had to pass them before you were allowed to go on and write your dissertation. And, you know, it's like, 
I like it just, uh, Hey, prepare however it is that you're going to prepare. And my method of preparation was I actually went back through uh, every class note, every book, every piece of information that I had from the classes that I had taken. And I turned everything into a question and answer format, everything, you know, it was literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of questions and the answers to those questions. And I was studying over the summer with two other guys that were in my program and we would meet at, at I believe 8 a.m. every day in the library and we would begin going around and asking each other the questions from these documents. And we had a, a signal, like, like I think I was the circle, Sean was the star and Jason was the square. And uh, it would identify whether or not you got the question right. Or, or actually maybe either right or wrong. But ultimately what we did over the course of the, the months of preparing for these exams was we whittled it down to only the questions that you had gotten wrong. And then you would be continuously asked the question that you got wrong mm. until you got it right. And because um, what's the point of studying something that you already know? Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you what, we actually, uh, we redefined the performance on those exams. Like uh, the highest score before we took those exams was something along the lines of like an 86 out of 100. And the lowest score that any of the three of us got on any of the exams that we took was a 91. Wow. And uh, the school had been giving these exams for over 100 years. So it's, it's, not, like, uh, it's not like our scores were, were even – they were an aberration according to, you know, the historical data on these tests. And, and we just shattered these things. Yeah. And, and it was, that was the process. Yeah. And it took a long, like I locked myself in my room and I looked like a, an insane person after about two or three weeks of going through all of this information and writing out all these questions. And, uh, but by the end of it, I, I remember walking in to take these exams and I was like, you know, so confident it was a joke. It was like, there is nothing that you can ask me that I don't know the answer to. And the answer is actually going to be the exact answer. It's not going to be this kind of fluff, like a working around the question sort of answer. It's going to be literally word for word, the right answer exact to this question. There is nothing you can ask me. Um, and, and I think I retained almost all of that information even till now. Um, and, and so it's just fascinating to hear that that's actually the, the approach. And because I would always tell students that that's the way to study. How do you study? Like, this is how you study. And it's, it's funny because in, in Make It Sick 2, they talk about the illusion of knowledge. And, and like one example they give is rereading or reading something over and over gives you the sense of the illusion of knowledge. Like, yeah, get that. Mm. And it's like, you know, if you go back then 24 hours and say, right, tell me what you read. And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. But it's, it's funny too that, uh, you know, Jim Quick, who's, that's his actual name, Jim Quick, but it's K-W-I-K. He's a, he's a, a memory retention and recall guy like and he's got loads of courses i actually have one of his courses i haven't gone through it yet but it's like his his sort of his whole thing is about mastery and memory and recall and he has this this four word principle called fast f-a-s-t and it's forget active state and teach so he's like for for memory and recall like the first thing is forget like forget anything that you believe like oh my memory's bad like he's like that's bollocks your memory's just untrained 
because uh, mm. loads, loads of people say that they go, oh, my memory's on train. It's like, or, or, or people say I have a bad memory. It's like, that's just the equivalent of saying I'm weak. And it's like, of course you're weak because you, <laughs> you don't do any strength training. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So it's like, my memory's bad. It's like, yeah, but when do you ever train your memory? And then active, this is the key thing. He's like, learning's active. And so that, that goes back to like, so like when I'm now reading and I take those little verbal tests and written tests, it's like you have to be actively engaged in it to like learn it. Mm. And I suppose one part of that is being motivated with the topic that you're learning. And that again goes back to the teacher too, because you get so many people like, oh, when I was in school, I hated that topic. And it's like, because the teacher you had was shit. They lost mm. all passion for the job and it was boring. But when you get a great teacher, like you're so lucky like the amount of people go oh i loved history or i love science and it's like what was your teacher like oh i loved my teacher do you know because probably their teacher was great at, at like you know making the topic exciting then the s was state so his whole thing is you got to be in the state of mind to, to study and then the last t and you'll appreciate this because you just completely nailed this he's like the last t is teach if you want to if you mm-hmm. want to master a topic teach it because you can't explain it to someone it's like you don't you don't know it well enough so it's uh yeah it's it's definitely uh interesting topic finally for a wrap up here um we haven't touched on the patriots and nfl how, how are you feeling mm. nfl's going this year um you know eight and one currently as they sit uh you know obviously the ravens were a good team and i was texting and talk, yeah. talking about how they're going to stymie lamar jackson lamar didn't actually do too much damage now against them um but the ravens are, are looking good they, they have a nice brand of football but i'm just, i'm just so impressed you know, and it's it's funny, like, this podcast now being recorded on the day it's being recorded, and we go back and listen to this, and, and we'll know, obviously, now who's won the Super Bowl for this season. Right, right. And, right. and what happened. But I'm just saying this right now, like, you know, because we're all experts in hindsight, but I am so impressed with the Patriots, given, given the, like, it's not like they don't have great players there, but the squad they have, you know, as individuals, like, they're not the most... They're not, they're not the most incredible individual footballers that has ever lived as a, as a unit, as a team. But just the system that them boys live within, like basically from what I see, and I'm not a football expert, and I'm obviously I'm Irish, and I'm looking from the outside, the outside in, but it just seems that Belichick and his coaches seem to be able to get the best out of the players, out of the potential they have, like within the system that they design. Like they, they seem to really design up systems that suit the players they currently have, like, you know, using Gordon and Michelle and whatnot as for the running game. And, you know, and obviously fucking Brady, they still incorporate him too, obviously with some passing. They just seem to mix it up really, really well. Like, oh, Pat's gone off. No, I'm, I'm here. I got you. Oh, I thought you. I thought you were gone. You thought you were gone to. Yeah, something. No, something went for a second there, but I. Yeah, I'm good. So, what, what are your thoughts anyway? On NFL? Well, you know, I think that it's it's so crazy. You know, I've been watching NFL football basically my whole life, and you know, the ability for like I think it's harder for NFL, at least in American sports, it's harder to be consistent year after year in the NFL than it is in any of the other major sports. Mm. Now the NBA, the NBA is getting strange now because of the degree to which guys just change teams. And, you know, you really can just plug in two guys on any team and all of a sudden they go from like terrible to, you know, potentially winning the championship. Uh, So it's, it's an, it's, it's the NBA is, is changing different in a different way than any other league. I think more, more quickly uh, and if there's trickle over, you see it happening in other uh, in the other leagues now to a, to a greater degree. 
with, you know, like Jalen Ramsey from the Jaguars demanding a trade in the middle of the season and actually being moved. And like the power of players is, is becoming more, more demonstrative. Mm. But overall, I think that sustained uh, winning in the NFL is, is so hard to do. You look at the other teams that have won Super Bowls in the 2000s, and, and generally speaking, they, they haven't been able to repeat it very often. The only exception really would be the Seattle Seahawks, who, who have managed to be a, fairly, a pretty sustainable team uh, of winning over a similar timeline to New England. Yeah. Uh, not to the same degree and not for the same length of time, but, but they've been always a presence, and they are again this year. Mm. And I think part of it is because the NFL schedule is really an interesting thing. Because if you finish first in your division, you the next season you have to play the other first-place teams in the conference from the other divisions. Yeah. And and that's an because if you finish last, you play all the other last place teams in the in the other divisions in your conference. You get the last place schedule or the first place schedule or the middle middle pieces. So it it, it seems as though most of these teams that rise to the top, they, it's like you go from the bottom to the top, and then you settle back into mediocrity because of the schedule. Mm. Uh, the schedule is is the greatest parity creator because you only have the sixteen games. And, you know, the difference between making the playoffs and missing the playoffs is two or three wins, typically. And the schedule will oftentimes dictate those two to three wins. Um, And and I think that that if you look at, like, New England's success, you have to – like, the AFC East, and it's a good good year to demonstrate it this year, has historically been a pretty bad division. Yeah. Uh, You know, you got the Dolphins and the Jets this year that are just tragically bad. It's like you automatically pencil in four wins for New England right off the bat. Uh, and, and four wins, four automatic wins is almost enough to just guarantee a playoff spot. Uh, and, and it's also like – but I, I think that it, it has to go above and beyond that because New England has been uh, so dominant now for 20 years. And it's a it's a length of time of dominance that's unlike anything else that's preceded it. He in, he's in he's coming he's coming up on Landry's record. I think Landry had twenty one winning seasons in a row, and I think Belichick, yeah. Belichick's come up on twentieth season or something. Like that. that sounds about right, you know. Uh, so so what is it that allows for that to happen? And and I I mean it's not like I'm I don't have inside information I don't I don't know anybody that works in the Patriots organization I don't know what they do that's so different from other teams but as an outsider I, I get glimpses of what I think it is and and number one is that uh, like I think that the foot in football the coach matters more than any other sport in in America uh, because you you have to have the players organized and completely on the same page in terms of it's football needs to be black and white in terms of rules uh, versus other sports have a like baseball, for instance, it's like, there's no way you can be as disciplined in baseball as you, as you have to be in football. Uh, You know, football, it's like everyone has to follow the rules. There is no exceptions. You have to be here at this time or you're gone. You know, you have to like do what you're supposed to do or you're gone. And if you allow any wiggle room in there, it seems to cause like huge problems in the cancer in the, in the locker room and the team. And New England just doesn't mess around. 
Mm. It's like they don't care who you are. They don't care how talented you are. They don't care what your history is. If you violate the policies, you're gone. And there's no questions asked. And, and it's also like, uh, you know, when you look at Belichick's press conferences, he gives reporters in the media nothing, no information. Yeah, he's so, uh, so, so stone-faced. And, and other coaches can't help themselves. They always give them some information, and then the media turns it into a big story. Like the Antonio Brown story should have been a much bigger story, but Belichick literally gives them nothing. And they don't let other players talk about these topics. It's like you are not allowed to talk about it. If you talk about this, you are gone. There's the, the level of discipline that they demonstrate in every area, in every detail, is, is thought through. It's pre-planned. It's, it is automatic in the response. And if you violate it, you're done. Um, so, like, those are the things that, that come to mind. And it's like they do that with the plays. They do that with, with preparing for situations. There's, there's no situation that arises that they're not prepared for. Uh, and I just don't know if other teams have the same level of discipline in terms of the degree of detail and preparation that they go to. Um, you know, every, like, generally speaking, every team is going to lose at some point. Yeah. Like, you're just, you're, you're, you know, you're not going to have – like certain plays are going to go against you. Certain environments are going to be really difficult to overcome. Uh, a player like Lamar Jackson, who's fairly unique in terms of his athleticism and his style of play, the first time you see him, you're not going to know how to deal with him. Uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of like there's going to be so much overreaction and like, oh, well, you know, they can't deal with this kind of a running quarterback. And, and their, their, their historical data against running quarterbacks is not particularly good. Mm. Um, you know, so it's like there, there, are, there always are a few – because essentially if you're incredibly disciplined and you always do your job, you are predictable at the same time. And when you encounter someone that is a Lamar Jackson game breaker, the, almost sometimes discipline it can go against you because what is the one – it's kryptonite to discipline chaos and like you're adding chaos to the equation with someone that that can cause that much havoc in terms of just being so different from every other quarterback in the NFL mm. um you know so so there's 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 so many variables at play that go into this stuff but overall when when i think about like the likelihood that they'll that they'll go to the super bowl and win the super bowl is still it's still greater than any other team being able to pull it off. Like they're, they're the favorites for a reason because of, of the fact that like there's no circumstance that they're not prepared for. Now that they've seen Lamar Jackson once, they're going to have film on him. They're going to have a feel for him. It won't be the same thing when they encounter him again. The other last thing that I'll point out that they do that, that most other teams can't do or can't help themselves New England does not play the same way in the regular season as they play in the playoffs. Mm. They come at you with a very simplistic model when they are playing you in the regular season. And they play differently during the first four games as they play in the middle of the season as they play in the last four games. And then they play, generally speaking, what you see in the last four games is kind of what you start to see in the playoffs. 
where they figure out who they are and what's working for them from an empirical kind of experimental process throughout the year. And then they identify the key ingredients that are working better than any other ingredient. And then they focus on those things as they end the season and they amplify those things and project them going forward into the playoffs. So it's, it's like, they're not afraid to lose a couple of games to learn from what happens in that process. Whereas other teams, a don't have the luxury because they're not guaranteed a playoff position and B don't have the discipline to actually go through with that kind of an approach. So um, I, I find them to be fascinating uh, from, from a lot of approaches, but it's, it's, it is the discipline and the rigor and the diligence that they demonstrate in every single area that people in all realms should really learn from. Um, you know, regardless of what your profession is, if you take a page out of Belichick's model, you'll probably end up being more successful. He's something else though, isn't he? Like when you really, because I've been watching a, a lot on NFL over the last, I'd say, um, not quite 18 months, but like, you know, I just watch a ton of like Football Life, America's Game, and then just interviews and all the great coaches and players. And, and you just see like the sustained success of Belichick. It's just like, it's, it's outrageous. Because like, again, you look at like someone like Landry, you know, legendary coach, all right, whatnot. Um, and I don't mean this, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like he only won two Super Bowls, yeah, you know? and like and still phenomenal, and still got the Cowboys to other Super Bowls as well, and you know, again, I think it's twenty-one winning seasons in a row we had before he had a losing season, and then like you look at other great coaches like Shula, the most wins of any coach, you know, three hundred forty-seven, I think was his final win in total, like. And it's just like, well, he coached for 33 years, so that's why to be 33 years of co- as a head yeah. coach. Um, you know, just stuff like that. And, like, you know, you got Joe Gibbs, who's a legend, three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, Chuck Knowles, four with the Steelers. And then you're just like, Belichick is six. Six Super and, Bowls. And still going. And still going strong. And it's just, again, what I was saying, I don't know if you heard me earlier on, it's just like, it just strikes me too that, like, like even like the team last year and you know this from obviously being over there but like everyone's like ah oh, the Patriots they're old they've no standout players Brady's too old you know what I mean they're just like Gronk is fucked he can't move <laughs> you know, it's just like you know Edelman like you know he missed the start of the season his head's not right you know and all this and it's just like they just there's just something there like again American football does lend itself as a sport to being a little more controllable from a system of play than say like more chaotic sports like obviously like the Irish sports here or like soccer you know they can be a little more chaotic um but still like it's just like success leaves clues and you're just like there is something so intriguing just about that whole new New England period since 2001 until this current period in time it's just it's phenomenal like yeah I'm lucky to be a fan during that time, you know, and cause I remember how bad they were when I was before that, you know, they were a terrible football team. Oh, and then man. all of a sudden the switch and it's been like, Whoa, like <laughs> this is unreal. And it yeah. just keeps rolling. It's, it's actually, it's actually like, it's so hard for anyone in the millennial generation to even fathom like how bad they were. They were a joke. 
<laughs> yeah. Like they were like one of the worst teams ever they were back in the day. Like they got to like two suit they got to the Super Bowl in the eighties and then they got hammered by the Bears. Yeah, but it was the most comically bad Super Bowl in the history of Super Bowls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, oh, great, we made it against this team that just mauled us. Like, yeah, that was, it, one, that was one of my first sports memories, actually, was that, that 85 Bears team just killing the Patriots. And somehow, despite the fact that they made the Super Bowl, it made them more of a laughing stock. And then Parcells got into a Super Bowl that he won here in the 90s. Yeah, a very forgettable one against the Packers. Packers, yeah. Like Brett Favre. Brett Favre's, yep, that was the Brett Favre Super Bowl win. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's like, uh, and I think that they, they, they really like, they were a surprise team to make it and they actually mm-hmm. had a pretty good performance in that Super Bowl, yeah. but nobody gave them a shot. And then, you know, of course they, they, their first one was against the, the Rams, the greatest show on turf, uh, St. Louis Rams. Yeah. To kick that penalty, the, yeah. And, and that was, uh, I, I believe this. The, the second greatest upset in Super Bowl history. Well, they, um, were they the champions at the time? Were they the Rams? The Rams. They won. were the they were the defending champions. The you know, Rams they had won ninety nine two thousand. Were they the defending champions? I believe so. I think they won in two thousand. The ninety nine two thousand season. No, yeah, because Dick Vermeil was the coach, and then the Patriots what were? But I thought two thousand two thousand one was the Ravens, and then the pa- Patriots won two thousand. Oh, it might have. There might have been that that gap in between there. Yeah, the Ravens. The Ravens possible. won two thousand two thousand one, and then the Patriots won two thousand one two thousand two. That was the first one. Yeah, and then then you had Tampa in between that. We got we got, yeah. Guyton is that his name? What's his name? What's his name? That coach. He's the Raiders coach there. Uh, yeah, John Gruden, yeah. Gru- Gruden, sorry, Gruden, yeah. He's gas. Yeah. So funny, that guy, Gruden. And then the Patriots won the two in a row, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, so it's it's been fascinating. But, um, I mean, look, like, I could talk football all day, but I think uh, I'm going to be in trouble if I don't uh, – Yeah, I don't, yeah. If yeah, we don't too. finish this up here. Yeah. But uh, Robbie, listen, it's it's been a real pleasure, man. Uh yeah. listen, as always, as always, and just for those uh again, just for my own clarity of mind and for the for all the, the, the science nerds, so just that I got this right. Work is force times distance. Power <laughs> is force times distance over time, which is essentially just work over time. And in strength and conditioning circles, they know as force times velocity. Yes. Anyway, I just had to say that. It just drives me nuts. But come here, listen, that was a phenomenal conversation. Um, yeah, I'll let you go. What, what have you got planned now? You just off with your wife for today? Yes, we have uh, something with, uh, with a group of her friends. And, oh, uh, that's fuck, about... you, better, you better go. So. <laughs> y- yes, sir. <laughs> All right, here, Pat, listen, this Thanks. is phenomenal. And uh, yeah, send me on the updated version and uh, I'll definitely give it a read and we'll get back on this bad boy, this podcast and we'll blow the world's mind with rethink the big partners you got it man that's a that's a that's a promise right there all right come here love you so much appreciate the conversation as always you take care and have a great saturday mutual same to you thank you very same much bye